ear of a princess vengeance quenched at the fiery gates of hell. A prince destined for Valhalla. Hear me. Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Itch Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by fellow medieval historian Miti von Weissenberg, who is a previous guest, of course, who is now here to discuss a 2022 film, The Northman. So Miti, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm super excited to talk about this movie. I am super excited to hear your perspective on this movie, since you are, of course, more of a Vikings expert than I am. Which So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you did want to talk about this particular film? I'm a medieval historian. My research specializes in late medieval gender and sanctity and marriage. I examine you know, biographies of married saints to examine how religion, both piety of the men and the husbands and piety of the women's impact masculinity. And I would like to think that sort of that's my flagship courses at Xavier University where I teach are my courses on sanctity. I use Francis of Assisi to examine mm-hmm. the you know, 12th, 13th centuries. I have a whole seminar on saints' origins to the internet. But everyone mm-hmm. else thinks that my flagship course, like my big contribution to the university is my course, Vikings! Exclamation mark, ah. which I just taught this past semester. And my first ever job was at a Viking center in Finland, where I'm mm-hmm. from. So I never, Vikings and the North, or I mean, we don't call um, all Americans plumbers just because there are many plumbers in America, right? So I like to use the term Norse and Viking as a description of an occupation. And so I was very interested in Norse, but it was always like a side hobby. It's like, like you know, intellectually the equivalent of knitting. Like, I knit. That's my hobby. <laughs> I, I am interested in Norse. And I was teaching fellow twice for a course, Vikings exclamation mark in graduate school. And I learned a lot about teaching in that course. It was co-taught by a literature professor and a historian. Then it was somehow easy to develop this course. And my course is, I mean, I could just have labeled it, you know, Vikings myth busting. Students have to have a lot of emotional processing for the sort of like all the things they thought mm-hmm. about the Norse that isn't actually the case, starting from the this is the whole population called the Norse. I really wish in many ways that I had thought of this as an option of the final exam. Mm-hmm. They watch this movie and write an essay about Veres also. What did they get right? Based yeah. on what did they get wrong? And what would they have added from what we learned in course? But I didn't mm-hmm. do that. Um, I didn't think of it. I wasn't really Next aware the movie was even out there until it was too late. And I also don't feel it's really... I feel it's immoral to require students to pay money um, to like go see a movie. Yeah. Especially not everyone is comfortable going to a movie theater. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in the tail end, hopefully knock on wood, tail end of the pandemic. And so I went and saw the movie with a medievalist colleague who works on sort of 8th, 9th, 10th century Baghdad and sort of Cairo Jews in the Muslim world. And so we went to see as an end of semester celebration and then with the pizza afterwards and we had it was just very interesting as a medievalist to mm-hmm. who just finished teaching a course on vikings to see this was also the first movie that i've seen since the beginning of the pandemic oh wow um, there was only six of us in the movie theater so that was okay I, i'm very i'm super super curious to hear your thoughts on it as well and as i was watching the movie i was like oh no kind of 
interpreting what would what would Sarah say about this and what would Sarah think about that and oh I can't wait to hear what Sarah has to say I didn't know if you already had somebody lined up and so when I texted you and I was like if you need to talk about this movie mm-hmm. best, I could totally do this so I'm excited to get to yes I'm I'm very excited that you text me because I was absolutely like you know I'm I've got to see this I've got to you know have somebody and I was so thrilled when you texted me and offered to be on the podcast. I was going to go see this movie in the theater and then I realized that instead one could at this point we've reached the point where uh, you can pay more money on Amazon to watch it at home alone and. <laughs> not have to go to a movie theater and not have to leave my very charming pets. So I did that. And also because, so it was $20 to rent and $25 to buy. I now digitally own my own personal copy of the Northman for forever, I guess. I suppose. I mean, we went on a Tuesday afternoon and it was $5. Mm. And as I said, I figured there were not going to be a whole lot of people. And there were six people in that audience. So, and also going to the movie theater mean I didn't have to close my home we literally, I think, went like the day rental grades were due or something. So, mm-hmm. no, before. So, technically, I should have been cleaning. And so, cleaning the house was not going to happen. Very fair. Very fair. Uh, I don't think Opie and, and Dolce really care about whether or not you've vacuumed. No. And also, you know, I'm going to be uh, leaving for research travel soon. And so, I'm trying to get in as much uh, pet love time as humanly possible. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, the Northmen, directed by Robert Eggers, who I, I've seen The Witch, the, the, the Witch slash The Witch, depending on whichever, if you want to pronounce the weird spelling of it or not, which is not, a movie that I enjoy. I have not seen it. I have a colleague who teaches Colonial America who has not trashed it, so. Okay. Yeah, I do not feel I'm an expert in terms of the accuracy perspective, but it's a film that I enjoy a lot. And The Lighthouse, which I have not, in fact, seen, but which is uh, on my list. I've seen the trailer for The Lighthouse, and that tells me I should never see it. <laughs> Too many sudden movements. Yeah, that, that seems like the vibe. The Witch also has a decent amount of sudden movements, but it's, it's an interesting film. That one, that one I'd recommend. Stars Alexander Skarsgård as Amleth, and this is, of course, not his first time playing a Viking, since, of course, we can never forget Eric the Viking Vampire on True Blood. For those of us who haven't seen it, it's very forgettable. (laughs) But as I said, I haven't seen it. I don't really watch television. I did, however, look up Eric the Viking Vampire True Blood um, YouTube clips, and I'm like, is this whole, like, series based around him being shirtless yes. which wouldn't be the first time yes that no that is that's him. the point of his character is that he's shirtless in fact well, that certainly is a part of the Norseman. yeah he is shirtless and blonde and menacing that's that's his character essentially which you know same in this except now he's a little more like craggy looking in this particular role whereas he's very kind oh, of bad possibly smooth oh my god dude <laughs> Oh, as a person who has a Nordic father and, and posture is so important, it's constantly here, you know, Stanislav Skarsgård, the father being like, rock it again, rock it again, you know, straight in the back, straight in the back, but he's like, <laughs> not. Oh, sorry. <laughs> also then stars Nicole Kidman as Gudrun. And I have to make the note that, well, I think they both give great performances, but I had to look up 
the age difference between Alexandra Skarsgård and Nicole Kidman because she is playing his mother. The answer is that she is nine years older than him, which also is especially striking since uh, quite recently in the 2017 to 2019 miniseries Big Little, or I guess it started out as a miniseries and it just became a regular show, Big Little Lies, she played his wife. I mean... That's kind of typical Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Especially the age difference. I think that actors and actresses playing, you know, their romantic relationship versus parental relationships. I have less, I don't have any issues with that because, I mean, you see the same people playing this kind of roles in theater as well. But the typical age difference and... Yeah, yeah. We have Klaas Bang. Is that how you pronounce that name? Bang, I would just say Klaas Class Bang as feel near the brotherless. So that is the uncle. We have a brief but interesting turn from Ethan Hawke as King Arvindil, the war raven, who is uh, Alexander Skarsgård or Amleth's father. And we also have Anya Taylor-Joy as Olga of the Birch Forest. And then, of course, because she plays, uh, you know, spoiler alert, she will be the love interest. I had to then look up what that age difference is. So she is about 20 years younger than Alexander Skarsgård. So he, so Amleth is much closer in age, in fact, to his mother than to his wife. So in other words, perfect Hollywood. Work. Oh, yes. Yeah. Very Hollywood. Yes. And then also, of course, we can't forget to mention Willem Dafoe is Hamir the Fool, uh, a performance which is half a human. <laughs> really? I completely missed that, that uh, Willem Dafoe was in <laughs> I'm, I'm very fond of Willem Dafoe as an actor. I just had no idea. So, like, when you say that, I was just like, wait, what? I had heard that in advance, which was why, I, I, like, I think I knew that casting in advance, but I had not realized that, therefore, half of his performance is, like, as a mummified head. Which you can pull off. Oh, yeah, I mean, no, great, great job. Excellent performance. Yes. And, of course, we have Bjork playing a Cirrus. That worked for me. That really Oh, yeah. She did a great job. She's very eerie, which is the goal. Yes, yes. So the first section, the enumeratio, is where we get into some of the details of uh, the film. It begins. So we have, you know, runes for our title cards, as well as some, you know, the kind of indications in modern English text, also indicating uh, where we are geographically for these. We begin in... AD 895. And I'm actually just going to say that this is like a pet peeve that I increasingly have is the fact that I hate (laughs) that we use AD consistently. And that despite the fact that scholars have long ago come up with the alternative of common era and before common era, which are not explicitly Christian, unlike AD, which of course stands for Anno Domini and the year of our Lord. And I would add to that, I feel like when you are portraying a a sort of and emphatically, they are not Christian. I mean, yes. a significant part. Christianity plays a little part. I have some issues with that. But there's ways that one could have done this better, like CE, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. I also really, and this sort of ties into my issues with how we portray somehow the, the Norse as having a monopoly on violence. Yes, um, absolutely. It's highly problematic. I think that it would have been a really interesting way to this date CE and then you could have had I mean it would probably have confused people but like how was how are dates indicated in this time period and Mm -hmm. in general like yeah the 10th year of King Aurvandil's reign or right uh what is this 895 so however many 
reign of Emperor Otto or Pope so and so. Yeah. That, of course, would have confused everyone because. Yes. Nobody knows that. That would have been more historically accurate than, you know, from the perspective of who is being portrayed. Yes. So that's just a pet peeve of mine is that, yeah, especially when we're portraying non-Christian populations, these like intensely and aggressively Christian dating systems, I would like us to get rid of. That's the, I mean, if they are calling, you know, Neil Price and Johanna Friedrichsdottir and stuff like to ask about historical accuracy. And then we actually as scholars have an alternative. Yes, absolutely. So that's irritating, but so we have our king, our Vandal war raven, who returns to his kingdom and uh, greets his son. He's very happy to see his son, which is how you know immediately, even if you've read nothing about the film, that this man is going to die because he hugs his kid, and that means oh, this man's going to die immediately because it's a medieval movie, and fathers never do well in medieval movies or uh, Disney movies or Disney movies, yes. So we we know that King Arvandale is not going to make it. We also, I would say, even not necessarily knowing about the film, you can already perhaps get a sense that Gudrun, his mother, is maybe less excited about Arvandale's return than the son is. She seems maybe not especially enthused. And especially there's that moment when she sort of kind of alludes to, hey, dearly beloved husband, why don't we go and, you know, basically have sex and he's like no i'm gonna go off and do something else yes and in particular that he one of the things that he does upon his return home is that uh his son it needs to have this special initiation ceremony which uh, i believe you said you're a friend with him you saw the movie somebody i know as well described it as a werewolf bar mitzvah yes werewolf bar mitzvah which i i feel was just beautiful Boys becoming men, men becoming wolves. I mean, as somebody, she actually trains future rabbis. I feel like that was sort of a particularly interesting, interesting connection that I certainly had not thought about. And that whole cult of like Odin, because it's um, they have a they worship Odin, uh, Odin Mm -hmm. and Odin sort of being associated with well, ravens, of course, famously, but also Mm -hmm. with yes. a warrior king who's going out viking or you know actually going out doing the viking thing and raiding hi don't you and then so that kind of aspect makes sense but as i was watching it i was like this must have been very i mean people who are professional actors and i don't know if they get sort of embarrassed about running around on all fours and howling like wolves but i was it was definitely for me sort of a it makes sense and i like that they incorporate religion and i like mm-hmm. You know, we know so little about Norse. Right. We know so vanishingly little. And what we know is through Christian lenses. Yes. Completely. And which is obviously deeply biased because they want to present all of these polytheistic religions as being kind of fundamentally evil. Absolutely. And and sort of like then I was thinking, because part of me was sort of like, why are they going inside? Like why are they going into this like building thing Mm -hmm. as opposed to and then I was like, oh, that's because I've always been in, much more impressed with the, the sacrificial uh, lund, uh, like the tree groves and the holy yeah. and these things. But some of the early descriptions by Christians of Norse Sweden come from people like 
I'm Scott, the Apostle to the North, who's a very fascinating character in many ways, talks about the temple at Uppsala, talks about building a temple. And, and then I had to sort of have a moment of, okay, just because I want Norse religion to be very sort of in nature, this is my Finnish heritage possibly coming out here. That doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have equally evidence of, of this sort of a temple that somebody yeah. is saying has been built, whether or not it ever was. And so that was an interesting moment of realizing the great, as uh, Roberta Frank in her uh, article, The Invention of the Viking Horned Helmet, talks about the great God wish. And we're all superimposing what we want on these movies. So very early in the movie, yes. Yes, I want this, mm-hmm. but that's not what the director has wanted. And we both have equally, you know, we both have material that we can claim is valid for mm-hmm. everything. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so we have this very kind of emphasis on a kind of animalistic uh, experience that they they sort of howl and bark together. Assorted other bodily functions are emphasized. You Which, can also hear howling in the background of my house as the dog and cat chase one another around the room, clearly reenacting the scenes of the film. Very nice, very nice point. And also that whole, you know, wolves you know warriors being wolves of odin mm-hmm. does does come up later in, in sort uh-huh. of an interesting way which we can talk about at that point yes as part of this ritual this is clearly part of his becoming a man becoming somebody who is prepared in theory to be king at the point when his when if his father is killed already during this ceremony his father immediately is like by the way it's your job to avenge me something that will come up it turns out right sooner rather than later since of course very very quickly after this scene sort of as they're kind of coming out they they see the weird family tree the tree of kings which is basically a kind of quirky tree that looks like it has corpses hanging off of it which i mean that certainly also is something that we yes. have christian missionaries talking about and you know whether that was accurate or that was something that they put in because you know hashtag pagans mm-hmm. but there is source for it and then as amleth is cheerily hanging around and catching snowflakes in his tongue his father uh, gets shot with a whole bunch of arrows and then little amleth runs off and hides and of course you have i'm just thinking well he obviously can't enact revenge that he has sworn to enact right away because he's like nine uh, and of and course we have to mention that fjolnir his uncle is the one who then reveals himself uh, uh, relatively speedily as being the attacker here absolutely. Um, and, and also that he wants to kill amleth immediately so amleth does have to escape absolutely and sends uh, one of his men after amleth to get him and amleth cuts off his nose which yes is always always a, a fun thing and not something unusual you know you have like people named whatever the nose mm-hmm. and then he runs off and manages to escape into the village and the guy without a nose runs after him and then eventually reports back to Fjolne that you know Amleth is is dead Yes. So Amleth, is- meanwhile, yes, as he's kind of running off, my, on the one hand, I do always appreciate when films that take place in the Middle Ages acknowledge that, yes, they did have color back then. But on yes. the other hand, the fact that he grabs in this, like, bright red right. cloak yes. <laughs> as to, like, use while he's, like, running and hiding, it seems like a not quite that bright move. 
not a super bright move, especially because there are other options available. But I mean, yes. I certainly um, imagine that if I was being chased by, you know, somebody I just cut the nose off and who is loyal to the person who just killed my father, I also might not make the best sartorial choices. Yes, absolutely. So you can understand him. And so he, of course, at this point, runs off because he is obviously not in a position to carry out vengeance, but he has his mantra that I will avenge you father, I will save you mother, because his mother has been taken as well, and I will kill you Fjolnir. And he rows off in pretty big waves on his own with sea oars, and that was like totally unbelievable, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, And he comes up, as he's running through the village, we see in the background is carrying his mother who is shrieking and says a king needs a queen by which we at least i my interpretation and we will get to this later it sounds like she is just in distress and i'm like well of course he's gonna like forcefully marry the queen and you know rape her and wasn't that boring and predictable which of course having hamlet and having yes i mean this and also having you know this is not unusual in stories and sagas and so forth in general. So. Right, right. And, you know, very, oh, you know, and it's Hamlet, right? Obviously, the, that he kills the father and marries the mother. So yeah. that is, of course, a standard part of the story, which does, I will say, get somewhat upended a bit as we move forward. And I went into this not really having a super clear idea that this was a Hamlet retelling. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Or pre-telling, I guess, right? Because it's based on the thing that Hamlet was based on. That's Yeah, that makes sense. The moment they're like, oh, and his name is Amleth. I was like, oh. Yeah. Years later, Amleth is now in the land of the Rus as an especially rugged, now fully adult Alexander Skarsgård. The 12-year-old with the weird hair situation is now gone, which at least I don't have to look at his weird hair. So now I just have to look at Alexander Skarsgård, who... A friend of Ida who watched this was like, he's making having intense muscles look more disgusting than anyone ever before has. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Yeah. The one of the things that with that is that they first of all they call it the land of the Rus is always nice because that's mm-hmm. where we're at. That that sort of one of my pet peeves is why do the Norse? I mean, we actually have depictions of the Norse depicting themselves. And yes. people from what today we call England describing the Norse. They had short hair and yet all movies, all Norse, especially Vikings, always have to have long hair. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like, you know, there's this amazing article, The Origins of the Viking Horned Helmets. I feel like we need an origins of, of the Viking long hair. Like, where is this coming from? Yeah. And, of course, also the fact that I believe English sources also emphasize the fact that Vikings are actually quite clean, right? That, like, they are... <laughs> They, you know, look like they're sort of keeping up with hygiene. And, you know, on the other hand, we also do, of course, have a, even Fadlan's description of the, you know, the spitbowl. Whether that's a bit, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Yes. You can have, like, there's this complaint about English women, like, attracted to Vikings, you know, who are, you know, and you have young men who are starting to, young English men who are starting to imitate the Vikings by cutting their hair and washing and stuff. Right. Um, which very much emphasizes that at the very least, like in, in both of these, right, regardless, even if they're, you know, using water that maybe we think is, I don't know, has maybe a little more spit in it than would be ideal. They are uh, washing their faces in a way that they are not, in fact, constantly encrusted in dirt. Yes. Yes. And I think that there's a lot to be said for 
recognizing that how we imagine people that we have decided to label barbarian for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. we demonstrate their uncouthness through their lack of washing. And yet, historically, I mean, was there ever a more dirty people than European Christians? Mm. Like maybe later Europeans, but Europeans, I feel like historically have issued baths and, you know, as unhealthy and dangerous or just not feasible. But then at the same time, people would, you know, bathe, you'd have, you know, multiple people would use the same bath water. And Mm -hmm. so when they did bathe, so I I feel like it's really fascinating how we in the modern world have superimposed on the non-Europeans. It's a pet peeve of mine that people don't treat the Nordic countries as part of Europe. Mm -hmm. You know, panels on Northern European history and you show up thinking, oh, like, let's learn about 12th century Sweden and Denmark. And then it's like, England and Scotland and the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Like, hello, people. There's like five countries north of that modern European countries. But of course, there's an argument to be made that the Norse were not yet European. Time, but regardless, we have labeled the Norse as the sort of barbarian, uncouth people. Right. Or they must be free and they must have long hair. Right. And of course, even if we're talking about medieval European Christians, they, while they did not bathe as often as we think they do, they still bathed. They knew what soap was. They, again, nobody's walking around just literally with dirt all over your face, uh, (laughs) which is just so common in so many of these films that people that, uh, you know, that like Alexander Skarsgård just has this permanent like crust of dirt and blood for the entirety of this film. Which there's times that I can sort of see, you know, they, so we, it opens, is sort of the, the land of the Rus, and there's a bunch of dudes rowing. And so they're in the ship and they're rowing. Mm-hmm. And you have the arm rings very prominently. Yeah. Arm rings are these gifts that the chieftains, who will eventually become kings, would give to their followers as marks of loyalty, which explains why later he has to disguise himself. Right. In order yes. to get out, because he's in a relationship of loyalty with, you know, whoever the chief there is. Mm-hmm. And so, like, on a, a raiding trip, which they are, I could totally imagine that that's a situation where you're washing regularly, this having been said. Mm-hmm. They're also on a river and they're rowing, and they're going to be where they are geographically, they're going to be rowing upstream. So, that's mm-hmm. hard. Oh, I have a hard time imagining people would not, like, be swimming at the end of the day as they make Yeah. Camp. Yeah. And, Watching, so anyway. Yeah, so we have a quite bloody raid on a Slavic village in Rus. They murder a whole lot of children. And they prepare for this through this another wolf, wolf yes. ritual, which interestingly, so um, berserkers, berserkers, this sort of people who go berserk, right, often con- conflated with these sort of wolf men. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this ritual, what seems to be like a ritualized becoming wolves, because then they have wolf skin um, pelts on their heads and then they run around and like yell indiscriminately. Particularly children, they take, you know, everyone they're not taking into enslavement, they are putting into this house and burning, which makes no sense as the Norse tended to, you know, if, if this is, if they're out to get slaves they will be back again in a few years. So kind of like destroying. But, you know, they are Vikings and they're horrible and they're violent. And how can we make that clear to the audience that they're horrible if we're not like portraying them as horribly violent? So, And it's this very common trope that in 
in films, violence and the kind of sadistic desire for violence always uh, outweighs pragmatism. And you see this in something like this, right? You see this in the fact that there's all of these, you know, kings that they're like, I have to tax this village. And if they won't pay taxes, I'm going to just burn it to the ground. It's like, well, then you're not going to get anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Absolutely. And that sort of violence trumping pragmatism is so, especially the Norse were so so pragmatic. Um, yeah, no, exactly. Like, this is not how, you know, not, and not that there wasn't, of course, violence inherent in these raids, but that they would have looked very, very different from this, and that there is essentially a, a blend of violence and pragmatism. Yeah. And, and that's sort of like killing for the sake of killing, anyway. But, yeah. Well, so we're going to know that it's set in the Middle Ages, right? Indeed. We also then have Amleth being finally reminded of his, uh, of his good old mantra and of his ultimate fate by our creepy eyeless Cirrus, Bjork. Who is in the ruins of the house where everyone was burned. Yes. Um, and whether that he actually wakes up and goes physically into this house where he sees Bjork and she sort of like reminds him, or if he actually is just, it's a, just a visit, vision is unclear and perhaps doesn't act really matter. But it's a very, I thought it was a, quite an interesting and effective scene mm-hmm. in that moment. And I sort of found it fascinating they have this choice later, sort of the, the religious leaders, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, in the movie, in the Norse world are men. And then here in this Rus world where they right. have, uh, historically, we have really good evidence from a much stronger, or we have evidence for sort of a mother earth cults in ways that we mm-hmm. don't have in the Norse. And I thought that was sort of interesting to have this sort of female yeah. here. And then you have these male religious leaders, although you have that male seer who is wearing women's clothing later right yes which is really interesting in terms of kind of thinking about gender fluidity and flexibility uh in scandinavian culture during this period which is something we do have potentially some evidence for we do have evidence for we also have legislation against uh, you're right yeah which isn't itself kind of evidence for right i mean what would laws if that wasn't like a thing yeah exactly Um, and so, so I thought that was, I, I was, I very much enjoyed your moment in that. And it reminded me of sort of, you have singers playing seeresses also in sort of other movies and trying to remember the name of the movie where Eartha Kitt plays a seeress, um, oh. prophetess. Oh, shoot. I'm completely blanking on this. Now I'm of course looking at IMBD because this is like driving me insane. Yeah. <laughs> I will just add while you're looking that also like the the other thing I will say about this scene is that uh, having seen The Witch, Eggers does unsettling supernatural quite well. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is really one of his strengths that he depicts the supernatural in a way that it seems almost kind of earthy and grounded, but also simultaneously very otherworldly and disturbing. And I think that is really a strength of his as a director in terms of thinking about those uh, kind of the choices that go into depicting these kind of supernatural events and figures. And that was something that I, and I, and that was actually one of the things I kind of most liked about this film is the way that they supernatural is is kind of interwoven with the more every day. And that's also something that I think the witch does very well. And I I also, I mean, with the the Norse, we know so little about Mm -hmm. their religion ultimately. And I mean, everything we know about their religion was written down by Christians. And I remember having this sort of conversation with my students uh, last time, like in 2019, when I taught the course last, 
you know, somebody said something about, oh, there's this militaristic culture because mm-hmm. you know, the religion is very militaristic. I'm like, well, okay, that's what we have. But we also have all these goddesses and all these like fertility cult things. Yeah. We don't hear that much about. And we know from anthropology that when men were as anthropologists, you know, talking to non-literate people, asking them about their religion, they would find out about men's religion. Mm-hmm. When they would interview women and talk to the women, the women aren't going to tell the men about women's religion because or women's right. practices because that's not either it's inappropriate or it's like well why would I tell you because you're a man and you're not interested and then when they started bringing in female um, mm-hmm. anthropologists first of course as graduate students but then as actual anthropologists this whole world of women's yeah. religion and previously you know masculine coded cultures because and as one of my students reportedly said to his girlfriend like there's all this thing this stuff i'm never gonna know because of sexism and and so i often wonder like we have clear evidence that you have these women and you have Mm -hmm. um cults to female deities but we don't we have very little uh, we have very little evidence of what actually goes on and you talk about oh the powerful and you talk about Freya and you know there's Gidun mm-hmm. who guards the apples of eternal youth like all these things and we just don't necessarily know and we right and I believe we do also archaeologically speaking right we have some graves where based on grave goods we have uh kind of female skeletons that have been identified as perhaps being some kind of seriouses or religious practitioners as well the most, there's the most famous um burials arguably the Osabeti ship burial is two women who based on all the material evidence seem to have been some kind of religious seeresses, shamanesses, priestesses, <laughs> not to mention, of course, the um, grave that recently yes. um, studies show that this previously quoted warrior male grave mm-hmm. somebody who is, well, you know, chromosomes are female. And right. so... And we do because of that. We have essentially this kind of one, basically, kind of background shot of somebody who is uh, in the in the closed captioning, which I got because I, of course, watched this at home, uh, is identified as a shield maiden, and it's basically right. this kind of one sort of background scene, essentially, within this raid. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I missed that one because, yeah. I don't, I don't think I would have got, I mean, I think if you were watching it in theaters without the closed captioning that like in brackets identifies her as a shield maiden, like it would essentially be like the timber of the voice. If you're really paying attention, I guess sounds potentially more feminine, but other, otherwise it's like, it's very visible, I would say. And there's a lot of stuff going on there. But yeah, I, I exactly. with you that that sort of thing, imagining what religion might have been like in this mm-hmm. world, we know very little is super interesting and is a really fascinating opportunity to sort of think and I think that the evidence that we do have for religion and thinking scholarship by um, Thomas Dubois and others you know it doesn't really I don't think it's a massive issue or problem the way he does portray it and Mm -hmm. I like that he takes religion seriously like yes this was real and serious for them it's not racing the religion in any way in fact, it's central to just like religion seems to have been central to, well, it was central to everyone at this time here. Mm-hmm. Looked up Eartha Kitt, who's a singer. She played a seeress in Eric the Viking. Mm. Eric okay. the Viking, which was directed by uh, Monty Python. And so that's Terry Joe. Never heard of this. Tim Robbins, John Cleese, Nikki Rooney. Wow. Uh, I have not heard of this. I have to check this out. 
yeah, it's Eric the Viking is a is actually a really interesting interesting movie um, mm-hmm. in many ways, and in many ways combines absolute historical inaccuracy with historical accuracy in ways that is quite entertaining. Anyway, that was my singers as seeresses. Yes. So yeah, so we have our singer as our seeress who, uh, you know, essentially elaborately tells him, like, go the fuck home. And, you know, fulfill your duty, you're supposed to kill your uncle, free your mother, and avenge your father. Yes. So he... Starts essentially kind of asking around, I think. He finds out that Fjolnir has uh, has now, that the kingdom has now been taken from him by Harald of Norway, and that he is now in Iceland as a sheep farmer, and makes plans essentially to be part of a kind of caravan or transport of slaves going to Fjolnir. So he removes his assorted kind of markers of his status and brands himself so that he will be identified as a slave. And there he cuts his hair and dons local Slavic dress, gets rid of his arm rings, which of course, you know, he's in some kind of an oath of fealty, a relationship with somebody who's given him these arm rings. And so I interpret it as he can't just be like, oh, I'm going to go along. I'm going to mm-hmm. break my uh, my trust and I'm just going to go off to Iceland, do 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 But he has to sort of figure out a way to get there, which might yeah. be leading a lot, a lot into two arm rings, but they're so prominent on his mm-hmm. shirt that I, I, I stand by my interpretation. No, and I think that's fair. And I think, you know, the idea that, you know, he has to kind of disguise himself in order to kind of integrate into, you know, this person's household. I think it absolutely kind of like all, all works together well. We also at this point meet Olga. There's an emphasis on the fact that she is supposed to be, again, according to the closed captioning, uh, she is speaking old Slavic. I don't know if it is well done in terms of I don't know how close what she actually is saying is to Old Slavic. But I do like the move that there is an emphasis on the fact that she speaks a different language. I agree. I can't speak to the, to the Old Slavic at all, but I, I also, I always like it when we have multiple languages going on. Yeah, I do as well. Because it's, that's the way it was. Like you had... Mm-hmm. Being monolingual is historically, and of course, even globally, currently, an anomaly. So people encountering different languages and knowing different languages. And I really resent sort of movies where everyone magically speaks English. Yes, absolutely. And here, you know, of course, we have English as the kind of default in terms of what they're speaking when they're supposed to be speaking, I guess, what, Old Norse? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so we have that, but I do like that at the very least, you know, we have a sense of like, and there is also this other language that these other people are speaking. So I have an appreciation for that. English accents. Yes. Nordic actors speaking with accents and so forth. And, and I mean, that's, uh, that works. Yeah. And some, and some very creative accent choices made by Nicole Kidman and Ethan Hawke, who are just bless their hearts they're doing their own thing i'm not sure it's the same thing in every scene but they're having a good time i mean more power to them maybe more power to them and so i want to at this point talk a bit about olga because i was very very disappointed in the character of Olga and specifically the extent to which she is or is not a fully developed character with her own inner life because she's kind of not like we know that she seems to be some sort of 
sorceress or seeress or something. Mm -hmm. We see her briefly comforting another woman, but we don't really know exactly what the dynamic is there. We never really get a sense of what her motivations or desires are. All we see is that she kind of forms this bond with Amleth and then is like, you know, kind of in love with him and permanently on his team. But it's kind of like, why? He, this guy just murdered your whole family. And, and she knows that. And she knows that he, you know, she knows right away. She basically says, like, you're not a real slave. Right. And and so there's a lot of potential with Olga. There's a lot of potential. I mean, I think that if that charitable interpretation might be that, oh, she's recognized that he's one of the people who murdered and enslaved her family. And if she doesn't give him away, he might be able to help her escape, which, of course, he essentially does. But there's a lot of possibility i mean it seems like her motivation being oh he's he can help her escape but i think that there's a lot of missed opportunities to develop her as a character yeah i mean i think he she has a little bit more you know how she uses later she will see her use sort of menstruating as a Mm -hmm. way to get out of rape but clearly and and she she uses her sort of i don't know how she manages to bring mushrooms because you know but she managed to bring mushrooms from northern europe to iceland which, you know, Brownie points to her, I suppose. Maybe she just carries them around and they survive this sort of water-drenched transatlantic voyage. And I think that there's letting the audience either not think, and I think it, it, it relies a lot on the audience being so used to women not being fully developed people, Absolutely. not personalities, not having inner lives, not having their own motives, that they just don't deal with it. Because Amleth is the main character. And on one mm-hmm. hand, it, that's fine fair enough like if that's the main character that's the main character but there's so many ways that they could have given her more and not detracted yes. from their narrative just because i want her to be the main character and we'll talk about right. that doesn't mean that they the director wants it but again i think that she could still be a supporting character and they could i mean the two of them could have more conversations right I mean, because especially it's like you you could make an argument, right, that they potentially kind of have, you know, I don't know, shared life experiences and that like they have also both certainly experienced trauma mm-hmm. and we don't we don't get those conversations really, right? Like we we see things that she does and we see her conversations with him where she's essentially like, ah, yes, Amleth, like you're great and I will help you. And, uh, you know, and it's like, it's interesting because, you know, one of the kind of early lines as they kind of, as she kind of agrees to basically be on his team, that she says, your strength breaks men's bones. I have the cunning to break their minds. Which we don't really see her doing a whole lot no. of things, except when she drugs with people. the mushrooms. Yeah. And we, we don't see that much of that. I would have liked to see more of that given that it was set up. But also, I don't think it would have been asking too much to have gotten a bit more of a sense of essentially like where is she coming from how does she develop these skills like again why does she want to help this guy yeah i mean just leaving it at a oh he's so hot it feels a male fantasy i mean this is a movie exactly made for men and the male gaze and people feel yeah. like oh the muscle bound alexander skarsgård yeah but the audience for that is men and exactly. the fantasy of, of ideal masculinity, which ideal masculinity is synonymous with toxic masculinity in way too yeah. many contexts. Yeah. And so the idea that you're muscle bound and you're 
quote unquote hot, therefore the hottest woman in this. Read the only woman who is an actual character and isn't his mother. Right, exactly. <laughs> but is named and does survive, but like, yes. but doesn't pass, you know, other tests. And and so I think that there's sort of like a that lack of Olga as a person is it and I, I repeat myself, missed opportunity, but it also really problematically highlights the way problems with women in in Hollywood and in movies and how it speaks to these like marginalizing mm-hmm. other viewers. I mean, because you could have very easily, very easily like fleshed out yeah. the character and her maybe, you know, things like, oh, she's comforting this woman, you know, something about maybe he could have been like, oh, is he your sister? And maybe she could have been like, we were apprenticed to right. together or or even like, I feel like this is my job, right? Like, this is my, like, I have this position and that like puts me in this role where I, even though I'm young, have this kind of like semi-maternal relationship, right? To all of these women in the village that like, we could have gotten that. And I, I will say, I especially found it disappointing because I've seen that, I guess that Eggers can do better because, so Anya Taylor-Joy is actually the, plays the main character in The Witch, and that yeah. is, I think, you know, a, like, and there are critiques one could make, but I think she is a really interesting, really fully fleshed out female character. And again, you know, I understand she's not the main character, but like, I think that he could have done a lot better by her. And as I said, given that, like, I've seen, like, Eggers specifically make Anya Taylor-Joy into a really interesting and developed female character, mm-hmm. seeing him intensely not do that was a big disappointment for me. Yeah, and I mean, also thinking about how they use religion, I mean, maybe she could have had a vision on the ship. Like, maybe she's like, well, yes. I'm going to go into slavery, so I'm going to eat some of these poisonous mushrooms or a different poisonous mushroom and I'm going to kill myself. And then instead, she has a vision, which is like, if you stay and help dude, then you will become the mother of, of queens. Right, that at least would have been a motivation. Exactly, not, I mean, still something that centers the male narrative, but yes. There's, there was just opportunities. Yeah, at the very least, it would have, like, given a sense of, like, what is it that you want? Mm-hmm. And even if ultimately what she wants, right, is to become essentially the kind of accessory to this man, but so in doing gain a certain kind of power, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, I that would have been, I think, at least something of an improvement. It's just one of those things that this, it's easy to add nuance it doesn't have to, it's not like you have to create a whole, whole story narrative arc, although that would have been nice, but there's ways to complicate and to, I mean, you maybe by shortening some other scenes and adding five more minutes to the movie, you could have gotten a interesting and nuanced female character. Like, yes, absolutely. Well, and you know, you could, if you cut like a tiny bit of bloodshed, you probably even could have had it be basically the same length. You can't cut bloodshed. Come on, how else are we going to speak to the like the dude bros who are out there to bolster Indeed. their senses of, I don't know, whatever. Toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity. Uh, <laughs> basically everything. Right? Yes. So they get to the farm. Initially, Fjolnir is unimpressed with the crop of slaves, but Emleth, uh, you know, growls a bit, so he'll keep him. <laughs> First and foremost, the vast majority of slaves came to Iceland from Ireland, which mm-hmm. bringing slaves from Rus up the river, across the Baltic, 
through the Straits of Denmark, across the Atlantic. I mean, so my understanding, right, is that when slaves were taken from Rus, they were taken for trade than with the Islamic world, mostly, right? That is my understanding. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not possible. It certainly is possible. We have the example of Olaf Tryggvason, who ends up as a slave in Estonia. His, his mother is, you know, he's royalty, and then there's this whole, like, violent thing, and then he ends up as a slave in Estonia, and then magically his uncle is in Novgorod and comes and recognizes him and then sort of this whole being basically a slave in the land of the Rus-ish mm-hmm. that's not that Livonia really is but and then sort of making his way back and becoming king of Norway and so we do have that kind of mm-hmm. saga later but it's not that it's not possible right but you have these people and they're not emaciated they're not dying mm-hmm. you know you have this is a long voyage. It's a long voyage. And then to have paid for these slaves to be transported as opposed to people just because they say already, I mean, this is why Alexander Spavskov's character Omelette, you know, cuts his hair and gets in mm-hmm. to be a slave is because he knows that these slaves are destined to Fjölnir. And so that I would commission slaves from Rus to come. And then I'm like, no, I'm just going to kill them all. Until, you know, one of them growls and then they pick a couple of the women. And I'm just like, that just doesn't. That's I think the son is like, no, mom said we need to pick these slaves. And then he also like decides he has a thing for Olga because of course he does. But it really is fascinating. Just like that, just that, that the Norse were super pragmatic in ways that this just doesn't speak to pragmatism. I mean, it's it's in the script. So I suppose that's mm-hmm. okay. But, and then he growled that whole like showing that he's got like. Like he's a little bit violent and he growls and stuff. And then they'll be like, oh, let's right. So it's like, yeah. Oh, dad, can we keep him? Oh. I don't understand. Like, what does it, what does it, as opposed to being like, oh, these are the slaves and checking people's teeth and being like, okay, great. He like, kind of looks at them and he's like, no, they suck. Wait, exactly. What does that add to the story? What does that show us? Okay. That, that, that um, again, we could have skipped that. Had that scene be much more straightforward, sure, I'll keep these, and added two minutes giving us, like, some more characterization of Olga. I mean, absolutely. I mean, maybe the point of that is that he finds Olga hot. But you could have done that in ways, anyway. Uh, yeah. yeah. Missed opportunity. Yes. So they're now on the farm. It's clear now that Gudrun is Fjolnir's wife, that there are now... Two sons of Fjolnir, so one of them is Thorir, is I believe his name. Yeah, I just like for some reason had a block on like memorizing the name Thorir. Which also, fun fact, originally Thorir was supposed to be played by one of Alexander Skarsgård's brothers. Interesting. Interesting, since of course they are, you know, first cousins, the characters. I think it was Bill Skarsgård perhaps, but whichever whichever Skarsgård it was had to drop out of the project. Not. I mean, they are cousins, yes. Yeah, it, yeah. So it's the one who's about the same age of him, obviously. You know, not the one who's. Uh, I don't. I don't think he has any brothers who would be at an appropriate age to play Gunnar, who is his half brother, who is the uh, now. You know, I would say probably he's what's supposed to be 10, 12. 10, 12, something like that. Clearly, the mother Nicole Kidman's or Gudrun's favorite. Yes, and so her child that she has with Fjolnir. Emleth is, uh, you know, basically trying to figure out his situation. He kind of has moments where he, you know, exchanges dramatic looks with small animals and repeats his montage. Uh, we see him performing various slave labors. 
We see him attempting to catch a glimpse of his mother. And eventually he goes to see this uh, he-witch. So this gentleman also has the head of the fool Hamir, so played played by Willem Dafoe. And we we did, I, I think actually we forgot to mention his one moment where we saw him before actually kind of acting as the fool, that he said a line that was something along the lines of, uh, the queen's cup floweth for a man who isn't her husband. When he like, I don't know, she like offered Fjolnir water or something. And... Uh, Basically, I think at that time, Fjolnir, like, said, like, hey, what the hell, like, screw you, guy. Arvindil said, it's not that big of a deal. Chill. Fjolnir, we learn in this scene, once he came into power, quite promptly, it seems like, dramatically killed Hamir, including removing his eyes, tongue, and ears. Which is one way to use the talent that is Willem Dafoe. Yes. And, you know, Willem Dafoe plays a great severed head. He really does. He does excellent do- severed head, which is now quite chatty. And Amleth has a whole chat with like this dude and this mummified head. And I will say, I will say, I'm just watching the film, and it's very, you know. So one of the things that is a quite common, a kind of you know quite commonly discussed kind of theme in Hamlet is right that you keep kind of looking at him and it's like just fucking do it already, right? Mm-hmm. Like just if you're gonna if you're gonna vengeance vengeance already. Right. And like- this felt very similar to me, and that it's like. Oh, just, just sneak up in the in the middle of the night and like stab the dude. Why do you need to talk to all of these like people and like memified heads about it? Yeah, it seems a little bit like, especially because I mean, we early we the first time we encounter an Icelandic dude, he's he and and the son Gunnar are are building a fence, and it doesn't seem like there's he's not like heavily guarded. He's like doing no labor, doing stuff, and then. It comes across, you know, for pretty reasonable goalie, like important farmer, some hall, all these things. And so I don't think it, it's, it just seems really weird that like, it, there's no reason why he couldn't, why uh, Amlet just couldn't go up and kill him. I mean, apart from the whole, right. you know, script, but. But, but yes, yeah, so they, they tell him, you know, they got a fancy sword for him, the Droger, and that uh, he is also, it is prophesied that he will have to choose between kindness for your kin and hate for your enemies. He has his battle with the creepy guardian of the sword. And it's really interesting because Draugr means, like, basically a white. It's not like a... Yes. It's a, yeah. Graves. And so, like, wait, the spirit, the sword, at that moment, I was like, wait, I thought the sword was named Draugr. And I, was, I did, I think it's kind of both in the film, but yeah, I, I was trying to figure that out as well, because it seemed very clearly like they were saying that was what the sword's name was, but then, right, that that is, of course, the name for that kind of figure who is the guardian of the sword, so, I don't know, but he manages to kill the creepy, demon-y kind of dude. Yes. And whether he does it, does it sort of mentally or, you know, in a vision is also unclear, but I'm, I'm yes. Yeah. And also, of course, we do see Fjolnir going to creep on Olga, who lifts up her skirt to reveal that she is menstruating and basically scare him off. And whether or not the Norse had any kind of taboos about menstruating, I do not know. I have no idea. So this there actually was something. There, I kind of read up some discussion about this, which was essentially just that apparently... Essentially that he did try to look into this. He actually asked one of his consultants, Johanna Friedrichsdotter, about whether there had been a taboo about menstrual blood. 
her immediate response seems to have been like, I've never thought about that, but that she eventually seems to have concluded that there probably was not such a taboo. That would, I mean, I've never seen, she is, I totally trust her expertise. Her book is like, everyone should read it. Valkyrie. And I do, but I don't think so. And one of the things like, from what I have gleaned from later centuries, people in the Nordic countries have had a lot less issues mm-hmm. with around menstrual blood. But of course, we shouldn't be projecting backwards either. But I, there was part of me that was just like, menstruation plays a part in a movie. Right, right. It's- and I will say that you, you could interpret the film in a variety of ways. You could interpret it as there being some kind of taboo around menstrual blood. You could interpret it as him in part you know, being in part kind of turned off by her hostility, it, I suppose, could go either way. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It could be whatever. I mean, she's she's described later as being hostile to him. Yes. Um, or having been hostile to him in various ways. And so that could be, it could just be like, well, you know, I don't want to deal. Right. But I, I just, there was something, there was something very, you know, because clearly, he is in a position where he could rape her. Um, Absolutely. That would be like no, no penalty on him um, and so forth. But I, I, so I just, there is something, the gratuitous like menstruation moment. Right. As like taboo, because he doesn't seem super grossed out. He seems more like, oh, well. Yeah. Okay. So he's not grossed out. He's not offended. Yeah. He's like, and so as you, to your point, this could be that he's, she's just not like, willing quote unquote right right that he doesn't feel like subduing her right and i will just say i don't well i have a lot of thoughts about the ultimate kind of how these various characters are depicted and the question of like of whether any of them are like morally vaguely decent and i will say that even if like I'm certainly not like getting like feel near a cookie for not raping his slave. And in particular that like the whole idea behind the interaction, right. Is essentially the kind of assumption, right. That it is perfectly normal to basically buy slaves for the express purpose of raping them. And in this particular context, I would say, even if there's consent, I don't think it is really something that we can count as cons- as freely given consent given what that obvious power relationship is so essentially you know even if he decides he doesn't feel like dealing with a woman who is going to actively resist him or is giving off that vibe i think he is still essentially an attempted rapist and and fuck this guy and i mean that's one snapshot that's one yes what seems to be weeks on this farm and i have no qualms about assuming that he is successful in raping her later or Or raping another woman uh, you know That maybe he just decides essentially that like, oh, like she's hostile. And so she's going to give me more trouble. Maybe I'll rape somebody who seems like a little bit more, you know, a little bit easier to subdue. You know, I mean, so. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it's, it's clear that he purchases, you know, he, women who are good looking or women that attract him or whatever, that he purchases them so that they are sexually available to him regardless of their consent. But I mean, yes. Early medieval Europe, I'm sure that this is, I mean, we know that this was, happened. Do we need to wallow in it? Do we need to celebrate it in movies? Not that much. The other thing that I wanted to note that I believe is in this scene as well is that a comment is specifically made about her, despite being Slavic, of her being like, 
looking like a nice blonde Norse girl. What did you think about that kind of ethnicity comment? Well, yeah, I was like, um, people in Northern Russia and like all the down way to Ukraine and stuff were like pretty normally blonde. Like this is right. Not- it seemed like an odd comment to me because it didn't seem like it was so out of the ordinary that she would have this appearance. And also I felt like it weirdly, I felt like kind of racialized the dynamic in a way that doesn't quite feel accurate. No, I agree. I, that, it strike me as, as like, oh, and this is definitely something that, you know, white supremacist dude bros or white supremacist dudettes are going to latch onto. It's like, makes me very sad. And this idea of the Norse, when we know, like, what is it, 40% of modern Icelandics? as like to be supposed like genome like from the mother's maternal line are irish i feel like the, the norse were so culturally and genetically diverse within the parameters right. of the spheres where they're moved like you have the great heathen army in england as you know genetic studies show oh these are people from all over the baltic and people mm-hmm. from the british isles and from various parts of europe you know you have this grave in York, you know, you have multiple graves in York and one of them, the dude seems to, you know, grown up in Africa and stuff like, Mm -hmm. and also you have all this variety of grave practices. You have all this. Yeah. And so they're, they're importing jewelry and they're bringing in things. This is the people when they settle someplace within two generations, they're no longer speaking their own languages and Mm -hmm. not naming people, their names. Yeah. Um, I mean, and as you were saying before, right. I mean, Viking is a job, not an ethnicity. Yes. And so you, (laughs) So that kind of racializing, ethnicizing, is that even a word? I don't know. Like with that comment was really disappointing. And it's considering how much clearly research has gone into producing this, into sort of thinking about, because it captures sort of in many ways the ethos of of Icelandic sagas really well and really. Yeah. That then having that moment of like, I'm going to cater to this white supremacist idea of vikings was so disappointing i yeah i felt very similarly the other thing that now i'm thinking about is that i find it really striking that so then we also have the dynamic right where of uh, our i mean so everybody in this film is white in terms of you know the actors hired for this film in retrospect, I find it a little disturbing that, I guess with the exception of Gudrun, who is a perhaps, I don't know, ambiguous character somewhat, that essentially we have this kind of setup where basically like, essentially there's kind of the nice family, right? And they're all blonde. And then we have like Fjolnir and his elder son are the only people who are dark haired even, in that family, among the slaves, there are dark characters. And the slaves, yes. But, but of that, either. of our kind of family, right? It's like these people who are like the the, the evil line yeah. are the dark-haired ones. Mm. That's true. That's certainly true. And Olga is by far the the blondest, the whitest person. Right. Oh, yes. She's very world. blonde. Which could part of me is like, oh, wasn't there this something about... Like in in Nazi Germany, like people would adopt children from Ukraine because they were blonde. Like, and let's not, you know, like keep it topic, but they're blonde. And and so all these things. And and just like, which is again, you know, nothing against obviously Anya Taylor Joy, who's like great and doing a great job with the little she is given. But I think there are really questionable 
choices that are made in this film in terms of how they want to depict the central characters and how they're kind of drawing sometimes subtly and sometimes less so on certain kinds of discourses about race and ethnicity. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I think Ethan Hawke is pretty dark, though. Medium brown hair mm. in this movie. That's true. Okay. Yeah. Of course, I'm very bad at like really figuring out knowing always what people consider blonde and whatnot. When I lived in Italy, people thought I was blonde. So, you know, and it's like, oh, it's the black haired girl, right? So, who knows? Yeah. Nobody's um, ever thought I was blonde, but. Right, right. Yeah, but I wonder, like, I've been thought of as blonde, and too, how much is mm-hmm. it like hair color being. Yeah, an Italian stereotype, and how much it's just because I'm like really white. I've got mm-hmm. really, I'm like sunburned, freckled thing. And in Finland, there's often this sort of like I'm very dark haired and very dark eyed and dark eyebrowed, which is mm-hmm. not sort of a stereotype. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thinking about like what I would qualify Ethan Hawke in in this movie mm-hmm. as being, you know, medium, mm-hmm. medium brown, dark, you know, medium. Yeah. But then Nicole Kidman certainly is very, very emphatically blonde, this reddish blonde hair, long. And then Guna, the son, the young son, I would not consider blonde. Right. But definitely lighter in hair than, than uh, Thorir or Fjellner. Right, yeah. So, I don't know, there's, it's a little, it's a little bit weird, and I don't know exactly what's intentional and what isn't, but we'll, we'll talk more about essentially the kind of ways in which this movie I kind of wish he'd made some different choices on that regard. He's now got this fancy sword, but he is holding off on actually beginning his process of vengeance because, you know, fate said he has to fight Fjolnir by a lake of fire. And where's my lake of fire? So I guess I can't do this yet. Um, Iceland. Exactly. Like there's conveniently a lake of fire nearby. (laughs) He, meanwhile, as you know, has basically also says, you know, so we... So we know that he's supposedly, you know, a more decent guy than Fjolnir, that he is convinced that, of course, his mother is going to be thrilled at his whole vengeance plan and says that he is, you know, basically promising that he's going to let uh, Gunnar, her son, with Fjolnir live. Then we have our game of what I like to call mean lacrosse. Yes, I mean, that is a very interesting scene in so, so many ways. That is sort of an interesting moment where where sort of they're they're heading off on these to visit another farm, which I'm like, oh yes, I just taught these sagas where they do it. How exciting! And then one of the other flames is like, are you a good? Or he asks like, what are you carrying? Do you know how to fight? Yeah, and then yeah, you know how to fight. And it's sort of left up in this very sort of it's this moment like, oh, what are these? Oh, these are you know whatever the not like bats. And he's like, and have you never heard of this? He's like, no. And they're like, oh well, you will learn all about it by the way, can you fight? And he's like, uh, yeah. And then suddenly he ends up, the next thing we know, we have sort of the powers that the important people sitting there watching in sort of the quote unquote bleachers. It's a booth, right? And then he's sort of standing there. He has no idea how to play this game as if nobody has explained to him what the motives or the goals are, how this is supposed to work, which makes no sense. If I'm going to play a game, which seems to be very important, I would at least explain to my fellow teammates, okay, this is what the point is. It but also we- would have been useful for the audience in that they obviously, they have an excuse, because I didn't understand what was going on and what the point of this game was. So at the very least, if they, like, somebody had sat down and explained it to Amleth, which in context would have made sense for them to do so, then I also would have known what was allegedly supposed to be going on in this game. Right. But at the same, then the audience with Amleth learns that, oh, it's basically people who hit, they're trying to hit a ball 
you have but mostly seem to hit each other. But mostly seem to hit each other. And it seems to be like, if you have the ball, then people will hit you. And of course, the end climax, whatever, is that in great excitement, Gundar is super excited by this. And as people, as there all seems to be slaves that are playing this game too. And as they get too hurt or die in this process, then they're sort of gotten off the field. And for, do I remember correctly, it's like omelet alone? Yeah, so so I will just add, like, I so I was, like, writing my, you know, notes on this, and so I says that he's brought to play some dumb toxic masculinity game where they beat each other with sticks. New sentence, I hate men. And then, seriously, is this just an extra obnoxious version of lacrosse? And I think, I mean, we know that, not play, we know that they, they played ball, and this was, like, a thing we don't yes. know about. Yes. We know that people could get very hurt, and I think, I think there's, like, I want to say there's like compensations if you're people yes. get killed in this um, yeah or hurt like different bodily you know it's like the traditional mm-hmm. legal system like if you know you cut off an arm then you have to pay this much in compensation and various things but i mean it's i don't know as a person who doesn't really watch sports i was just like well whatever but i wonder yeah. if the point is that gunnar is super into this game and he gets so right that he like runs onto the field which is never a good idea not a good idea. And then somebody on the other side seems to either not realize that this is, you know, the son of an important person. And it looks like he's about to, like, the ball is in, this child is lying in the grass, possibly passed out. And he gets kind of hit in the head pretty hard, right? His ball is, his, the ball is right in front of his face. And it sort of looks like this other, presumably a slave, is about to take the bat and bat the ball along with the kid's head. And then Omelette comes in, kills the other guy, saves the day. And butts him to death, specifically. Yes. I feel like we need to clarify that specifically he headbutts him to death. Headbutts him to death. And this is sort of a moment, so I was thinking, okay, what is the purpose of this scene? Is the purpose of this scene that he's like, this is my brother, my half-brother, and I have to save him? Is this a, why do we have this gratuitous, very violent thing going on here and the only yes. reason for it, it was partially like okay like violence gratuitous violence a choice by the director to have violence or is it that moment where he sort of has some kind of realization or like this this is his brother that because he's then wanders off like you everyone else is fussing over this child who's then like you know mother did we win <laughs> um and he, we see omelet in the background sort of like he's walked into the the hills a little bit further off and seems to be just like having this like oh my god moment you know in yeah god moment my half brother almost died oh my god i just headbutted somebody to death and i'm just <laughs> is it to show us how much gudrun loves gudnar like which i feel right. like eternal love never needs to be proven in in narrative well in this movie maybe it does well, in this movie maybe does wait what are your thoughts what what does this seem why I mean, so so the other I mean so I think there is certainly the, some element is just that he wanted to have this gratuitous violence and that showing up even in the context of something that is uh, technically supposed to be play. I think that's certainly part of it in terms of why it is so intense in terms of you could have done the same thing if I'm saving him without him headbutting a person to death. The other thing is that I was wondering is to what extent we can ascribe it to Emleth 
as a motivation, what actually ends up happening, right, is that he gets rewarded, that he gets mm. kind of special status. And that is a special status, which I mean, it also is he eventually, eventually will uh, allow him formally to marry Olga. But in addition to that, it also puts him in a position where he has potentially the ability, in fact, to kind of get closer to the family without arousing suspicion immediately. And so I was wondering if that was actually, if it was actually in part calculated as a way to kind of endear himself so that he has the ability to kind of, as I said, kind of get, get maybe a little bit closer to these people in order to carry out his plans. Having somebody explain the rules to him would have been useful. Right. Would have right. Been, then he would seem like, oh, oh, so what happens if we win? And the other slave being like, oh, we get perks. Right? Well, but also, yeah, that he saves this, that he saves the kid, right? That that's really what he gets extra rewarded for. And so is he saving the kid because he's his brother? Or is he saving the kid because he thinks he might benefit yes. in some way from saving the kid that will ultimately further his revenge plans? Or because it's just decent to save a child. And of course, he also, you know, had the traumatic experience, right, of being almost murdered as a child of approximately that age, you know, is it just a kind of knee jerk, like, I was in that position, and nobody helped me, I want to help this kid. And I do feel like there's ways that all of this could have been done. And I think that you're absolutely right. All of this works really well in the narrative arc of the movie. Mm -hmm. It need to be this violent. Yeah, I don't think the violence is necessary. I like I like the ambiguity actually around his motivation. I think that's kind of interesting. But yeah, I I, I think you could have accomplished the same thing without literally headbutting a dude to death. Of course, I wonder if there's sort of a, some kind of a narrative point to showing us that he is still very, even though he's been doing all this farm labor, which anyone who's ever worked on a farm knows that that is not physically easy labor. Like right. Here to show us that he's still physically capable and you know a fighter that he still has the ability to exact revenge on Pyramid, which is a little bit far-fetched i suppose i just i'm just really grappling with this why did we have to have this very i mean we know right but we know that people can get really hurt so maybe i'm overthinking it but it just the extent the face butting to death and you know I mean, it, it felt very gratuitous to me. And I kind of think that was the point to some extent, right? That I that I do think that it, it's not the only thing happening in this movie. And there are things that this movie is doing that I like. But I do think a point of this movie is, you know, some amount of like people were very violent back then. Yeah, and I suppose that's, that's sort of the, the trauma in many ways that I have of all Norse. Like, why are we not showing? Why wouldn't it have been much more nuanced to have a game that, yeah, it's violent. I mean, American football is really violent. Hockey. Oh, yeah, yup. I mean, like, think about the amount of people who have, like, concussions that affect their entire lives because of American football. I feel like there could have been sort of a, a missed opportunity. This movie has many missed opportunities to mm-hmm. showcase the, the non-violent sides of Norse society. This could have been yeah. a could have been a friendly game mm-hmm. the kid could have run out there could have been another right. accident still happen there could have been sort of a camaraderie after like the winning and the losing team or like buddies you know which we have evidence for like people pouring drink for other people and and you know on the, on the losing team the winners you know offering drinks to the winners and and vice versa and you could have had that kind of thing but instead we're going for the gratuitous violence because vikings are always violent 
Yes. The other thing that I will add is that, so I think certainly, you know, we'll talk more about this, but I think certainly there was like an effort made, right, to draw on reality in this film. And the other thing that I kind of felt about this game is that even though I think it is narratively useful to have it in some, like to have it in some way, it also to me felt a little bit like what I, especially I feel like I see this a lot in historical novels that I like how that I have I have some, there's some that I've read that I call like index card books and mm. that there are sometimes details that kind of feel like, well, they're in the book because the author read about them. Yeah. And that, that also, this also felt a little like that to me that the author read about and was sort of in, or that the director read about and was sort of intrigued by this game. And so now the game has to be in the movie. As opposed to a, oh, you know, I don't know, a bull is brought to Iceland and it's upset. Right be upset being brought across the North Atlantic too and then it breaks out and almost tramples Grunnar and then Omelette saves you know which is right, all sorts of ways he could have you know done like a save the kit scene right like yeah I mean okay enough. there's that is interesting I mean I certainly it is yeah I just it, it, that makes that makes sense that he's, he's read about it he finds it interesting and so he goes with it and makes yeah. it like super violent hashtag Vikings yes Amleth gets to marry Olga now. They have sex. She whispers a bunch of stuff in Old Slavic about it. They have a good time, I guess. Old Slavic is her love language. Yep. And also saying eerie things like, my earth magic will stoke the flames of your sword. Which, I mean, then they have sex again, so I suppose it worked. Yep. And he says, like, yeah, no, tomorrow I promise I'm going to start the process of, like, ruining Fjolnir's life and and he does he kills some dudes and he kind of decoratively positions them it's a yes which was very see move and actually something we have from I think Celtic stuff that they like take Mm -hmm. like body parts and arrange them and things I could be wrong on that but this is sort of where I'm like oh this is like a cross-reference to Grendel right right yeah you know he is terrorizing the farm of course we don't Mm -hmm. have Grendel's mother and all that but, but I had like oh this is sort of like that creating fear terrorizing the farm and that's sort of an interesting experience in various ways kind of how he does that and this sort of terror terrorizing through some nighttime activities and then kind of blending into the slaves and that whole aspect of how the the people are clearly really scared and i i I thought it was really interesting they're like oh well could just be the christians you know they yeah right yeah and part of me is like oh come on people (laughs) century y'all know about christians this is not like you're not going to run around like being all like you're not othering this is not a society that we have any evidence whatsoever right. being othered but that is certainly a narrative that we do see in particular in white supremacist narratives anyway right interesting everybody is kind of freaking out i believe it is uh gudrun who suggests that it is the work of some sort of evil spirits essentially that she says something like these wounds are not of our world Yes. And I forget if it's exactly here, but we get a seeress, a female seeress who is mm-hmm. brought in. And in a world where religion has played a very accurate role in the narrative, and then suddenly you have this religious authority being like, oh, it's a spirit that needs to be appeased. Which, yes. I was first, I was sort of like, well, why can't she just be like, oh, you can still speak cryptically and be like, oh, what is one who was lost, who was returned for revenge, or this is a revenge narrative or whatever. But this restless spirit 
aspect and then they start sacrificing to Freyr and which makes perfect sense because now mm -hmm. they're farmers in Iceland so having a earth fertility cult makes mm -hmm. sense but I was sort of like why are the Odin religion and the right encounter with Björk why are these like or like the female Cirrus why are these like right and then you have this mm -hmm. religious I have a very hard time changing the narrative of the Cirrus what she's saying into that that could actually be accurate and mean oh yeah there's this kid who's returned and now he wants revenge I mean it plays I mean that makes sense because then we get the whole story of how you know they're going to sacrifice somebody and he comes in and wreaks more violence and havoc but you know picking and choosing which religions and which representatives of which cults get to be right and which ones get to be clearly wrong mm -hmm. yeah i would have preferred yeah. it if this also had been correct yeah, and it would have been yeah. That the humans would have interrupted. that would have been fine yeah. it's like why why are these women why are their analysis of the situation why is their vision in yeah now I and and you know and I guess there is obviously some element of the supernatural in that there is this claim at least in theory made right that something about the sword is fundamentally supernatural. Mm, that's true. Which I mean, yeah, I mean it's, the way it's been forged and the whole you have like the Draugr watching. Right, it. he has to yeah like fight this guy for it. So there is something mystical in some ways about the sword itself, I guess, but. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see them, I guess, be like, like, get a little bit closer in terms of what is the dynamic here. This is also when we, uh, Olga, you know, preps her, her magic mushrooms. Mm -hmm. We have, we certainly, it seems like there was use of, I don't know what it's called in English, but the flugsvamp, the, these poisonous mushrooms that you, they will rarely kill people and if not consumed in copious amounts. But how she got them there to Iceland, because they do not, in fact, grow in Iceland, I do not know. Right. Though she, you know, drugs the men and they're starting to hallucinate. And I guess just with this as a distraction, Amleth goes to chat with his mother. Not a great start already that he's just hiding at a corner as she begins to undress. Not a great start to the scene. Uh, and it doesn't get better. He reveals himself. She then tells him the truth, which is basically that your dad sucks. She describes him as just another proud, lust-stained slaver and says that she did not begin as his bride and that she, in fact, you know, has, has this brand, right, that she was his slave, compares the two children, says that, you know, you were conceived, you know, you were forced upon your mother, Gunnar was conceived with love, and that she begged Fjolnir, in fact, to kill Arvandil and blessed the you know him like also then killing amleth i missed that that she had asked or blessed killing of amleth that i missed that one yeah that she says that they agreed on amleth's death with his own mother's blessing so this is like really the moment when in this movie right if this is like a reddit am i the asshole thread the answer is everybody sucks here mm -hmm. like you know, so like Fjolnir, like you're, he's also a lust stained slaver. You just have a, you know, you've just exchanged one lust stained slaver for another. And it's very much this like, you know, sort of like patriarchal bargains dynamic, right? Yeah. That women are willing to accept this fundamentally horrific treatment of women as long as it's fundamentally horrific treatment of other women. And so she has this valid, of course, criticism of Arvandil as the person who did this to her but has no 
acknowledgement or self-awareness of the fact that Fjolnir is doing the same thing just to other women. Yes, absolutely. And, and so at this moment, kind of reminding ourselves of when we first meet Gudrun, the mother, it's uh, Amleth is super excited because his father is coming back and he runs into his mother's chambers and you see her pull back her hand as if to strike this child. Mm-hmm. And, and then when she's like, he's like, oh, father's coming back. Then she sort of changed it to kind of stroking him, like a caress. And so it, that does sort of, and that we don't see any kind of that behavior, only super loving and doting on Gunnar. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. But sort of that does lend some credence to what she's saying. But then also like when, when he says, and in this, when he kind of reveals himself to his mother, like I heard, you know, I heard you, I heard you screaming. And remember, we already talked about when, when he's sort of running on under this red cloak through the city and, and Fjolnir has, is carrying off Gudrun. She's screaming and she says, I was laughing. And I'm, I mean. That's not how they shot it. That's not how they shot it. On the other hand, from the child's perspective, what he heard, or, you know, she might have changed her. Or for that matter, she might've been putting on an act because she doesn't want to be formally associated with having participated in this, especially given that it's not only killing her husband, which again, I'm kind of fine with killing, being on board with the killing of her son is where it's a bridge too far for me. You know, like the kid's 12, he seems perfectly nice at, you know, at 12, not as an adult, as an adult, you know, I'm not super on board, but as a 12 year old, he seems fine. He seems like he loves his parents. He seems like a normal kid. Yeah. And so that's, but what really, really, I had issues when she tries to seduce Emily. Yup. That was, yep. that was, that was a whole move. Me. That did, that was, yeah. You know, when she's yeah. all and love and then she's like, oh, kill, kill, kill and you know, spare. Mm-hmm. But kill, I don't remember. She's basically she- like, kill every, like, yeah, sure, kill everyone and you'll be my new king. And then she like makes out with him. It's like, what? What? Why? Why do we need this? But in his defense, he's really freaked out about it too. Oh, yes. You know, it's this, the overall vibe of this movie is that I, I don't especially like Amleth or find him compelling. He doesn't seem like he has a ton going on yeah he doesn't seem like the most emotionally stable gentleman he kills some people who i can't say i'm upset but also kills a lot of people very gratuitously who really don't have much to do with this whole situation and so yeah but then his mother forcing herself on him although it turns out it's just a distraction so she can try to stab him yes but it's it's creepy and it felt very gratuitous. And I feel like they've set her up as a now a character who he has to understand as his enemy and who we now have to understand as, you know, morally ambiguous at best and reprehensible at worst. Which is in character with many, with women. Yeah. Sagas. I mean, this is one of the reasons I have my students read the saga of the people of Luxardal because it has this very, some very interesting, very complex characters, female characters who, who bring doom and destruction on everyone for a variety of reasons, mainly to do with pride. Mm-hmm. It is interesting, however, that in her, the Gudrun Nicole Kidman's character, 
while she has much less screen time than Olga, is mm-hmm. much more nuanced. Is much yes. easier to think about her agency, how she yes. Is, you know, her inner motives, maybe she's in love with him and maybe she was the one who on her, quote unquote, on her knees begged Fiona to kill Audemars. That's at least, yeah, how she is interpreting it now. It now, I mean, maybe she did, maybe she didn't, but she is saying it. She has, in the, in the, in the first 15 minutes of the movie, she's clearly interested in Audemars. She wants to, you know, he's hanging out in her chamber when she's doing tablet weaving very poorly, but she's doing tablet weaving. And, <laughs> there's this sort of interaction so she is in so many ways a much more compelling character Mm -hmm. than well really anyone yeah no and I think she is uh, I think she is arguably yeah the most compelling character in the film I think she is a much more absolutely successful example of a kind of well-developed interesting nuanced female character than Olga who is like kind of a nothing of a character in a lot of ways and so, you know, it's, you're then kind of ultimately left with the like, all right, like everybody in this family is garbage and I hate all of them and I don't really care who wins because, or like, or if everybody dies because they all suck, mm-hmm. but she's interesting. Yes. yes she is interesting. And- I'm trying to figure out if the point is that we're supposed to hate everybody and not care if all these people die. I don't know. I think we're supposed to be invested in Olga and her children. And that is, I think, where the film isn't successful because I, I don't wish Olga and her children ill, of course. Like, they're, they're fine. They're, I guess, you know, the only people who are decent, but they're kind of decent by default rather than actively, right? right. I mean, Olga just hasn't done anything awful, <laughs> but it's well, not that she's yeah. an actively likable character because she's not enough of a character to be likable. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the sort of the, in many ways, the weakness of, I mean, she's beautiful. And that's- yes. And this is a problem that I often find with directors, including directors who are, kind of, you know, this is actually a, a kind of critique that I had of, uh, of Green Knight as well, that the girlfriend character that they invent for the film, I think her name is Essel. She also, it seems like essentially a director exchanges her being pretty for her having a personality. Yeah. Although I liked her. I mean, I, I like the potential. I like that she was sort of his moral compass in a variety of ways, being like, you suck when he has that whole vision mm-hmm. in the green night. But anyway, I also like that she had short hair, which has nothing to do with anything. Mm. But yeah. Yeah, but it was, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I found the character unsuccessful in that. It seems like she was just like, it's like she was his moral compass, but also his moral compass in ways that didn't actually make sense for the Middle Ages. And that like, oh. nobody thinks that like, no. you're going to marry this like prostitute. Like no, what? Nobody thinks this. <laughs> but again, a missed opportunity. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That like, that was a character that like, I often like, that also just kind of left pretty cold because I felt like they didn't really do much in terms of giving her a personality or motivations outside of her relationship with this man. Mm-hmm. And that's precisely how I felt about Olga is that like, and Olga in particular, like there's so much about her that could have been so interesting that you just didn't do. Yeah. And as I said, I didn't, you know, I didn't dislike her, but it's also like, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm rooting for you, but again, I'm, I'm rooting for you because you haven't done anything wrong. <laughs> There's part of me that sort of, and maybe this comes to like, you know, movies that we would have wanted. Part of me was like, but what if this now switched this narrative to Gudrun and she became the character and she yeah. orchestrated this whole thing. But I mean, that doesn't happen. And I'm not yeah. sure if it would have been made. Well, it might have been interesting. But anyway. Yeah. Amleth kills Thurier because he's in a bad mood. 
he's, you know, yeah, he's in a bad mood, and, you know, Thorov is conveniently lying there sleeping, so might as well kill him. I mean, he kills Thorir because he feels like he can't kill his mother because she's a woman. Yeah. Is what, he, is what it actually, what the dynamic actually is, right? That, like, she's a lady, so, like, I, a man, can't, like, kill a lady. That's wrong. Even though, like, she is clearly more complicit by her own immediate admission she is far more complicit in everything that's happened to him than Thorir who yes. you know was an infant when all of that happened right so he's obviously benefited to some extent from it yeah and but... we first meet him literally when he's an infant babe in arms carried to his father and now yeah. he's asleep and he's killed and his heart is stolen <laughs> which I'm yeah. kind of like wait where did this come from why is Taking his heart. This makes no sense to me. And then the fact that this somehow matters a lot to Fjolnir, that his heart has been taken. Yes. That this is like the big, you can't, you can't do that. I need my, and I need my son's heart back. Yes. Which if he was Christian, I would totally see where that's coming from. Right. With resurrection. Yeah. Not have that. And I think that it's much cooler that he is, you know, and devoted to Frey as a fertility, as a farmer who, you know, yeah. matters in various ways but uh so he's now upset you know Fjorn is upset that his son doesn't have a heart and is dead and then not having a heart seems to be more important than him being dead which i suppose they do go together package deal hearts are not extracted without people being but dead. he wants the heart back even though that will not change the fact that his son is dead yes. including that you know he in fact so he's at this point kind of interrogating the slaves and you know gratuitously murdering a few of them just to you know to hammer home the point, right, to try and get a sense of who is Amla's accomplice among the slaves. As he is about to kill uh, Olga, Amla pops up and says, hey, I've got a heart. I offer you your son's heart. At this point, Fjolni knows because Gudrun has told of his yes. new identity yeah. that, you know, Amla is around and kicking. Yes. Amla gets subdued and brought over to Fjolnir with this heart that he is carrying. And Fjolnir has this line that he's like, in the end, you're just like your father. Evil begets evil. And I'm just sitting here saying, like, why do you think you're such a prize? And how exactly did the father beget evil? Right. Like, I'm not quite sure, like, anyway. Let me see. Right. Why is it evil for this kid to want to murder the person who not only murdered his father, but also tried to have him killed as a child? Like, that seems right. like a valid response and to want to kill that person. Revenge. Like, how much mm -hmm. of laws were about, you know, who's allowed to exact revenge on who and revenge killings were appropriate. And, mm -hmm. you know, like, this seems very strange as a comment. Yeah, it seems very strange. As a, I mean, obviously nobody wants to be killed and all that, but, like... Right. It's like, you're, he's not evil. Like, and again, I don't like any of these people at this point. But... <laughs> I mean, as things go, I guess, Amleth, you know, trying to kill his uncle seems seems kind of legit. Yeah. And his uncle not wanting to be killed, and his uncle being yeah. angry at his son being killed also is legit. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. So, and I can see him being mad at the him murdering the son, especially because that was very much like, it was, you know... Like that art, you know, I can also say like that seems like a fairly like dishonorable killing, right? Like he kind of snuck up in the night and murdered him uh, and stole his heart. 
So, so I can, I can also see that like that, you know, being like, all right, that was like, that was a dick move. And I also watching this are like, all right, yeah, no, that like, and like that one kind of sucked, right? Like, again, if you're going to kill somebody in that moment, like you actually, you should have killed your mother and not been like prevented from killing your mother by your own misogyny. Right. More shock than what's going on there, but misogyny, right? right? Well, you know, I mean, the ways in which like misogyny and like chivalry, for lack of a better word, are like deeply intertwined, right? Yeah. Amleth reveals that like actually surprise this isn't your son's heart it's a dog's heart so you're going to still have to keep me alive so I can reveal the whereabouts of your son's heart mm-hmm. so meanwhile he is left behind in the uh, the ravens free Amleth very Odin very, very Odin yeah, which I mean it had to be wolves or ravens but you can't have wolves in Iceland because it me that would be maybe too historically inaccurate but ravens you did have an Irish wolfhound at some point that's true yeah which, yeah which i'm always happy to see them but yeah but they're not rescuing um like they're not odinistic they're not odin no. animals unlike ravens and wolves in fact they're they're wolf hounds in fact in fact in fact i i, I mean I, there was I, as i was watching that i liked that scene the, the ravens come and free him even though it felt like i mean it has to do with that whole religion thing and religion right just being real in, in this culture, which of course it was. And, mm-hmm. and I like that again, the lack of boundaries, right? Between religion and supernatural and like everyday life. I like that. Yeah. So, so we they, like the Ravens. Yes. I'm team Ravens. I'm team, team Ravens. Ravens. They have their, you know, ritual morning for Thorir, which is of course taken, the kind of text is I believe taken directly from the Ahmed ibn Fadlan account of mm-hmm. the kind of morning ritual for the dead king. I am really, I did think it was a good director's part not to show the rape that is in Yes. Yes. I dislike that they omitted that. Yes, I did as well. But again, I'm just very much watching this and I'm like looking at Goodwin and it's like, you're fundamentally part of this really, you know, and not that there aren't other fucked up systems, but like that are, you know, specifically fucked up and how they deal with women but like you're part of this exact same fucked up system that you criticize when it was about you Mm. but that you're absolutely taking part in and facilitating when it's other women Mm -hmm. yeah which so i mean i feel like is very accurate like it's problematic morally problematic but i do think that and that's not just in the past i mean right now oh yeah no absolutely women who are the support that patriarchy and misogyny mm-hmm. gets from women is a really big problem. No, absolutely. And of course, there's also been excellent scholarship being uh, that's been done about the ways in which uh, white women are quite active in the, well, as in, you know, in terms of like ways in which uh, racism plays out in the United States yeah. in, in like contemporary context, but also even talking about not contemporary, but modern talking about American slavery and the ways in which white women are very, very much involved in that system and specifically involved in the ways in which we see power relationships and racism and misogyny intertwining to oppress uh, enslaved black women. And, you know, and as I said, white women very, very much being a part of that. So it is absolutely realistic. I, I agree. It's just, you know, I'm like, all right, like we had this whole scene where it's like, I'm glad that she's nuanced, but it's also like, I, this, I mean, this is a terrible person. She, I mean, terrible person, but at the same time, like, so she was, and I do not know if the Norse branded their slaves. This is something that was mm-hmm. surprising for me. And I, I was just like, well, I've never seen that before. But if she had been like, oh, I was the victim of rape. Your father raped me. 
And then I'm in love with this dude. If she had been sort of limiting, I mean, you do see examples of women being sort of like, oh, you have this slave woman that you're like sleeping with. I don't like this. And then the mm-hmm. husband's like, okay, we'll send the slave woman to this like sheep hole and she can live over there. But if she had like been trying to actively prevent or been like, oh no, we can't sacrifice this female slave to, you know, go to the afterlife with Thorin and stuff, that would also have not been believable. True. Um, that perspective. And so, I mean, it's a sort of, um, we have a much more evidence of like women being really bitter and jealous of, of right. men sleeping with slaves, but there's not a whole lot that they, I mean, they can do things within the power of the agency that they have, but they can't change that society and culture. Right. That would have been anachronistic. And so then you have a choice of like interesting characters and characters that can critique. But this is, of course, those situations where there could have been there could have been ways to critique that system. Like you mm-hmm. have the saga of the people of Luxaga where you have a dude brings home an Irish slave who turns out to be like a princess and daughter of the king of Ireland. Of course. Interesting. And she has a son and the wife is like super pissy. And then the, the husband's like, oh, okay. And has a son and this slave live separately. And eventually she marries somebody else. You could have had something like that that could have supported mm-hmm. the narrative and created right. the institution and been historically responsible. Yeah, and, and I do think that it is a very deliberate choice that she that she is very visibly present during that scene, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it also could have been a choice for her to just not be, to just not actually be actively participating in that scene and in that ritual. Yeah. That I think that, you know, that I, that I think it's an interesting choice that I, you know, that again, I think is realistic and also, but also something that like contributes to her being a, you know, still a deeply kind of villainous character that mm-hmm. she is actively participating in this. Yeah, I mean, doesn't she hand the torch with which he yeah. lights higher in various ways? And exactly. Yeah, like she plays a very, very active role, right? And so it is. I think it is a different move if it's not if you know you have her actively participating in this versus not doing anything to stop. You know, I mean, I think those are different things. Or I mean, you could have had her actively participating because that's her role as you know, the stepmother, because step mm-hmm. mothers and step parents mm-hmm. play an important role in foster parents as well, play really important roles in the saga literature. And you could have had her hand the torch, but then there could have been a moment, which would have been really interesting, like when the slave girl is, she's actually garroted, I believe, in the Ibn Fadlan narrative. Yeah. She's single, but here she's knifed. Mm-hmm. I mean, wouldn't it have been an interesting choice that Goodwin would have looked away at that moment? Right, yeah. It's and it's, it's just interesting that this... This character just seems to utterly lack self-awareness, I guess, is what it is, in a way that I sometimes find frustrating. And it would have been an interesting choice to have her actively participate, you know, be the evil that Mm -hmm. she is in trying to seduce Hamlet. And yet there could have been interesting nuances of either how she treats beautiful slave women or how she Mm -hmm. she could have tried to ostracize them or have them do horrible labor or yeah or you know maybe she could have been nice to the female slaves because she was once in their position right or you know like some kind of more like playing up on that or like in that moment when that the sacrifice the human sacrifice to Mm -hmm. uh, like some kind of emotion some kind of i mean she could have like maybe her face could have been splattered with the girl's blood and you could have seen this like morbid joy that would have been interesting and like Mm -hmm weird about you know we would have found that terrible but you know that would be the sort of villain building process or 
you know, there could have been like, as this slave girl was being killed, she could have just like looked away or, or some kind of a indication of some kind of a humanity would have been yeah little easy ways of making this more complex. But of course, yeah. And I just, I, I guess at least I feel like, I feel like maybe I, I buy into this. I fully buy into as this character, right? This kind of patriarchal bargain move. I kind of fully buy into her not having the self-awareness to acknowledge that she's participating in the same system and that her new husband is also a lust-stained slaver to use her own terminology. I think maybe the film could have done a little more to interrogate that and the fact that she does have this lack of self-awareness. Which I think is, I mean, lack of self-awareness is historically accurate, but Absolutely. At the, same time, the director, the should director, have self-awareness. Director, I feel like people in the modern day, us doing these, I mean, these movies, the audience is not medieval Iceland, mm-hmm. right? This is yeah. a modern society where if you can easily and cheaply add nuance, it's, it's a miss. I mean, this is, I feel like Northmen missed opportunities. There's many things yeah. that are really good. And I feel like I have not express some of the things that I do like in the movie yes focus much more on the critique but we are going to be getting to some of those things yes absolutely he manages to escape he and Olga have sex in a hot spring so that's nice I guess she's managed to get clothes and two horses so yes very impressive right very impressive they make plans that they're going to travel to Orkney where he's got some family. We've got this. We have like no idea. Oh yeah, absolutely. That he has family in Orkney, but we're sort of like, whoa, where did this come from? Like, why didn't you ever not, go to your family in Orkney? I mean, if you, like when he escaped. Did they know you're alive? Right. Did they know you're alive? Like all he has is like a ring that he stole from his mother's bedside table, right? To prove that, you know, he is. Why did he not go to Orkney when he escaped? We who know about Norse are like, oh, yes, it makes perfect sense that you're like from presumably Norway because Harold, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Iceland and Orkney. I mean, that makes perfect sense because, you know, we talked about this in week five of the course or whatever it was like. But if you are not, if you are completely uninitiated person who knows nothing about the Norse world, what's Orkney? Right. Yes. You don't know what Orkney is. And also it's just like, I, I just like love that he's basically like his, his plan ultimately, because ultimately he doesn't even end up going himself, of course, because he has to stay and, you know, complete his vengeance. Is that he's just going to like plop his like pregnant wife on a ship and have her show up with a ring at his family, who again, it is unclear if they know Amleth is alive and just be like, these kids are your like grandnephews, like take care of me. Right. I mean, of course, initially he is going himself, but then he has this vision and we've seen it before, like this vision a tree. of a, a tree, right? And yeah. then himself as dead, but from him, these two children, and he's like, oh, you're pregnant. And she's like, well, I didn't want to say anything. Um, she's, of course, very early in her pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So we, if it's, you know, going to be viable. But as we are... His vision it, says it's viable. That's... The vision says it's viable. Absolutely. The vision and conservatives in America say that it's viable, right? So here we are. You know, so he says like, all right, so I have to, you know, so he says like, you know, I have was told I must choose between kindness for my kin and hate for my enemies. I choose both because while Fjolnir lives, my children will never be safe. So he ships off his wife. Uh, Yeah, no, that is, that is not an unfair or unreasonable assessment as things go. 
So he ships off his wife. Brief shout out to the gentleman who's like really got like a look. He's got like the like boat guy, the boat captain. He's oh. like got this like one earring. He's got a whole like, he's got a whole look. And that is uh, Ralph Ineson who, uh, who played the Green Knight. Really? Uh-huh. And also is somebody in Game of Thrones. I think maybe one of the actually sort of Viking inspired, oh, what is that island called where Theon Greyjoy is from? The Iron Islands. Oh, right. So the look he has is very, very much resonates with me as a Cossack look. Mm-hmm. And I'm putting a thing in the chat for you. The Zaporoshian Cossacks, the Cossacks wrote right to the Ottoman Sultan. Mm-hmm. And they have this with shaved heads and like the side, like little lock of, of hair and mm-hmm. like big mustaches. And so, and it's been sort of publicized with this war in Ukraine. There's a, a recreation by Ukrainian soldiers when they're writing a letter to Putin, right? And so that look, I see it and I'm just like, whoa, this is very early modern as a look. Mm-hmm. Which, but I, I, it was again, and she... He responds in their language, which, I mean, I was always mm-hmm. going to get points from me in various ways. So that, yeah, I, I, I did not realize that that was, that was him. But, you know, it's, I like that character. I like the, mm-hmm. uh, the he's representing Eastern European. Yeah. Eastern European presence on this very Icelandic route, which was sort of mm-hmm. a, possibly the only well one of the very few shout outs to diversity in this cultural sphere right and this is one of the things that also then i i found sort of i mean frustrating then because it's like all right so you know we've got this guy here now right so we're acknowledging that it then made me kind of frustrated once again that in the raid earlier in the film it didn't acknowledge that there are also these like real trading relationships as well within Rus and so you know and I would have liked to see more of to see that relationship be more nuanced because the way you have then this merchant coming in who is presented as like being like a Rus merchant it feels like it comes out of left field because it seems like it doesn't match up with how the dynamic is set up earlier in the film even though this is now of course more accurate yes absolutely and would it have been an interesting if we're now going to bring somebody in from left seal left field what if we have had like a genuinely like a non from a modern perspective non-white person? What if it had right. been a sailor from from I don't know Andalus? What if it had been right. North Africa? And then you'd have like people in the boat from all kinds of different ethnicities. Mm-hmm. What if that had been part of it from the very beginning? That is a thing that they could have done that they did not do. And I mean, part of me is like, okay, it makes sense that they're. In, that the he, the captain, is somebody who speaks a Slavic language, because then we get the whole Olga being like, oh, by the way. Oh, right. right. And I would have found if, if, I mean, of course, this is not, the, the Vikings rowed their boats themselves. They're not, my students are often surprised that they've not used slave labor for rowing of the boats. Mm-hmm. But I don't know I, if that would have been the case otherwise, and it might have been an easy place to be like, oh, we'll have, like, the people rowing people of color, which uh-huh associated as slave labor to the moderns. The moderns understanding of what we would be seeing. But anyway. Yeah. Yes. Leaves his wife with him. He goes back to the farm. His mother attacks. He kills her. Stabs her right in the heart. And she she says, says, thank you. Thank you. And that was one of the most interesting I really like that. 
moment in mm-hmm. that moment because it totally speaks to multidimensionality that she has that nobody else has in this yeah it does and it then kind of made me it made me wish that maybe we'd gotten a little bit a little bit before that a little bit more a little before that in terms of her feeling some kind of internal conflict about her life choices Mm -hmm. I guess you know which could have been coming from a variety of places it could have been about the fact that she signed on to have her having her son murdered it could have been about the fact that you know she is saying that she hates Arvindale for these reasons but that she ultimately is then like very deeply participating in the same system with a man who's doing the same thing so you know so the thing you kind of then introduces that but I wish there'd been a bit mm-hmm. more Gunnar also attacks and Amleth kills him too and and it's almost like an accidental killing and he's sort of like mm-hmm. this is the where we see remorse yeah, we see remorse. And we also do see, right, I, I, I think it is very much a choice that's made in the film uh, that in terms of killing uh, both Gudrun and Gunnar, that he only does that, you know, he is attacked, right? He only does this mm-hmm. because they attack him and that he probably would have let potentially them live otherwise. I mean, despite the fact that in terms of like issues with vengeance culture, he actually has you know, you could understand why he even would yeah. have chosen to kill Gunnar. Not that I'm saying that's a good thing to do, but that it at least, like, there is an understandable reason behind it and that, like, this child will, like, grow up and, you know, be a threat to your children Yeah, as well. Which um, himself embodies. Yeah, it's absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, and so I think it is interesting in terms of thinking through the way in which this this exact kind of culture, right, is fundamentally, like, not generative or socially beneficial mm-hmm. yeah which i hope we get to talk to about later yes we will talk about that soon but so let's kind of do yeah i guess i like get through the end of the film fjolnir shows up says i will meet you at the gates of hell thank goodness they're in iceland they have a nice lake of fire that they yes, can fight they by yes so amos shows up he, you know, looks upon the corpses of his mother and his half-brother, at which point he says, slain by iron, we shall all meet again in the stronghold of the All-Father. And I'm just like, that just sounds like the worst Thanksgiving dinner ever, but for all eternity. <laughs> that does sound pretty bad, yeah. <laughs> they have their fight on their lake naked, of fire. Naked lake of fire fight, yes. Naked lake of fire, and essentially they kill one another. Yes, yes. To make a lengthy fight short. Which, I mean, I mean, it's sort of like, I feel in many ways, it's a satisfying end from that sense. And then he has a vision of Olga with the twin children. Mm-hmm. Um, and focus and zeroes in on the girl child who is going to be the maiden queen. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you're setting up a sequel where women will actually be like fully fledged characters. That would be interesting. It would be really interesting. And I mean, I, as far as I know, there's no sort of stories about maiden queens in the Norse mythology. So maybe there is an Irish or Scottish, right? Like Orkneys. Although... As I asked, I had my, my students, they, they do a sort of a expansion project. So they're as groups given a region to look into. Why did the Norse come there? What were the long-term effects? And then when we meet, and I'm like, well, what are, what are some of the top things you want your colleagues to learn from this? And Phelag mm-hmm. or Team, Team Scotland, Phelag Scotland was like, you know, that there are no sources. Like, there are just so few sources. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so if there would be like a Scottish or Irish story about like a virgin queen, that were mm-hmm. maybe queen that would be super awesome but anyway yeah we see him like riding riding into valhul with a valkyrie who yeah you know he, he gets his wish he definitely gets his wish 
Yeah. In many ways, this things that I liked about this, there are many things that I liked about the movie, but one of the things I liked, it's very much captures the ethos of revenge culture as we mm-hmm. know it from Icelandic sagas and also mm-hmm. the Gagos laws, the, and sort of the futility of revenge yes. cultures. Which is something that's critiqued within the sagas, right? So, yeah. and I like that. And you have very, I mean, one of the reasons I love the saga, the people of Laxadal, is that you have people who are actively trying to break out of the cycle, even mm-hmm. to the point that they're kind of losing their own, losing face. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly it's women who call them to this, like, you are unmanly, you are like, mm-hmm. why are you not doing what you're supposed to do? Right. And you have this, like, mechanisms trying to get out of it. But you mm-hmm. also have very destructive fuse. Yes. And I think it is interesting that we have this moment, at least, right, where we see Amleth as trying to break the cycle in the sense that he says, like, I'm not planning to kill Gunnar. Yeah. That I think that is really interesting that we have that moment. And that's, of course, not how it turns out. No. And he's going to give it all up, right? He's going to give it up and he's going to go off with Olga. And then he has this vision that she's pregnant. As if he, as if this is a surprise that if he goes off with Olga, that she would never become her children. But at right. this moment, he's like, as he realizes, shit, if I have children and Fiona ever finds out about it, or Gunnar finds out about it, they're going to hound my children for the, to the end of, of the earth, just like I did. Mm-hmm. And then he decides to go off. And in many ways, it's sort of like, there is sort of this, the, the ultimate impotence to the individual, the detriment to the individual of revenge culture, but also toxic masculinity. Yes. Toxic masculinity that feeds into, feeds on and into this sort of cult of masculine, physical, violent, Mm -hmm. that is detrimental to society and the individual because the dude dies. He never gets children. He never essentially the entire his the entire family is dead, and that is this uh, to some extent like the the logical outcome of vengeance culture, and yeah. that is what's good. Like the only way to end the cycle is to kill everyone, right? Which this movie essentially does. Everyone except Olga and her children get killed, and and sort of in many ways, I can look at this movie as a critique of vengeance culture, mm-hmm. a critique of this particular toxic masculinity, but I wonder how many people are going to look at this and be like, oh, he was so heroic. You know, he died. Yes. And especially because he gets his wish at the end in a way that I actually, despite liking the supernatural elements, I almost wish that there'd been more ambiguity at the end about whether he gets to like, you know, go to like, what is essentially, you know, Viking heaven to use, you know, Western Christian terminology that I I wish there had been that ambiguity. And that's and that is one of the things that the the film is, I think, you know, a critique of that, right? It's a critique of vengeance culture, it's a critique of toxic masculinity. I think it's a more successful one than something like The Last Stool, which I won't talk here about how much I hate because you can listen to a different podcast episode about that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. But I do think that it has, but I, I wonder there's ways that there's again missed opportunities. Like yes. And very interesting if instead of the riding with the Valkyrie to, to Valhalla, there would have been sort of a, I don't know, maybe the Cirrus, the original Cirrus, mm-hmm. or, or Hemir, the, the headless dude had said something like, 
you know, now you get to have peace or, you know, I don't know, but instead there's, or even honestly, just like a fade to black in terms of like, we don't know what happens with the after, you know, we, we like, is there an afterlife, you know, and like, did the, you know, does this matter? Who knows? Or a a fade to black or the last thing we see would have been Olga and her children, which is why he ultimately dies. Why Mm -hmm. he chooses to go back and kill and be killed. I mean, he doesn't know he's going to be killed, but it's pretty clear he's... He thinks it's a possibility, certainly. Clearly, because it's not like, oh, I'm going to come and find you in Orkney and then we'll live happily ever after either. Like, that's not an ending that seems very likely. And I think the vision also implied that he was not necessarily going to make it, right? Yes. I mean, I would certainly... Because he has the vision of the family tree and he's dead, this having been said, you know... Well, because the children are also like still small children in that vision of the family tree. So maybe from that perspective. Yeah. But then, of course, I wonder to what extent, like, who is the audience? And I really am worried about the audience being people who are not, who are going to see this as a glorification of revenge. Absolutely. See this as a glorification of, you know, martyrdom on the altar of the pure white family. Mm -hmm. Martyrdom in the name of vengeance culture. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's been conversation as well, right, about the ways in which, like, white nationalists uh, like this film, and uh, they see it as, like, a good portrayal of, like, nice blonde white people who, you know, we have, like, burly, a burly blonde heroic man protecting his blonde family. With bad posture. Uh, she has good posture. I mean, she has perfectly fine posture. His is terrible. We'll see how um, the children's posture goes up. But that way you get this sort of the hulking, you you know, it emphasizes the muscular neck and shoulders and mm-hmm. which only speaks to the, the sort of male gaze. Yeah. And sort of, I mean, I'm not saying that women don't find that attractive, but certainly there's been studies about like, yeah. you know, the the male physique and the six souls yeah. as being something that speaks to the male fantasy. Right. Not more erotic, although certainly in that way as well, but it's sort of this like seeing oneself in that that that's an ideal for male gazes Mm -hmm. of sort of you're supposed to identify with the hero and the and all that aspect and so that speaks to to you know perpetration of modern toxic masculinity the so the other thing i will just say to that but i find it interesting right is that you very much kind of have that vision of alexander skarsgård you don't have i find interesting there really isn't a hypersexualization of women the mm-hmm. only, I believe, female nudity that we see is Olga, who's very much kind of like weaponizing it in some ways, or trying to like that she is kind of showing her body as an expression of defiance. And in this kind of context, you know, demonstrating that she's menstruating, that's, I think, only the actual, like the only female nudity that we actually see, which I think is interesting. I don't think either Olga or Gudrun are hypersexualized at all. And I think that is interesting. And I think that is another way in which this film, I do think works as this critique on toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. but that it is, I guess it's that it's, I'm, I'm kind of torn in that. I think it is a critique. I think it is a very subtle one. The fact that it is a subtle one probably makes it a better film, but also means that it has a lot of uh, leeway to be then misused by mm-hmm. exactly the wrong sort of people yeah and how do you make it i mean there's things that one could do that would have easily fed into a more complex a way that would have at least confused that population that could have been pretty easy to do i think of 
at the end of my class, I had the students, you know, on the board, write things that they learned, like what Mm -hmm. they think is like the most important things that they learned. And several of them wrote poetry. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that, I mean, one of the texts that we read is a kind of a boasting poem that this dude is like, why I'm so awesome. Poetry, poetry is often older than the text in which they've survived. Mm -hmm. And so we have people who, they have this poetry that's actually survives from the Viking age. Yeah. And so, and this poetry is basically boasting about, I'm this ideal, you know, warrior. I'm this awesome person. I know poetry and I can combine rhymes and I can dance and I know these, what we would call soft skills. And the mm-hmm. things that we, you know, in sagas, when people are referencing to each other, right? Oh, you know, like he was this great poet. I mean, also mm-hmm. aside for the first time when he's seven and he's really violent, but the poetry, like this expectation of like when Arvandil comes home and he's like sitting there and there's all this wealth, this jewelry and stuff that when the servants or slaves carry in these coffers, they seem really light and then they're filled with, with metal objects this would have been a op- great opportunity to come, you know, make this a little bit more complicated in the sense that he could have given gifts and then people could have like spouted praise poetry mm-hmm. in that moment, yeah. you know, valuing poetry. You could have had the importance of, of sort of creating ties with gift giving emphasized more. You have a well, little. Yeah. And, and I was going to say, that's the thing too, is, you know, especially as we kind of move into, I guess, the Vera at Falso and what they got right and wrong Toxic masculinity, as we now know it, obviously has historical connections and antecedents, but also a lot of how masculinity is defined in the modern period is just that modern, and that there's a lot more to, as you were saying, right, what ideal Viking masculinity was and included things that are not necessarily part of 21st century, you know, toxic ideas of masculinity, and and that we don't get that in this film. I mean, sure, you know, we can be embrace all kinds of problematic ideations of masculinity and still like really enjoy listening to whatever music or, mm-hmm. you know, the way that country and heavy metal and, and, you know, whatever actually portray the sometimes very toxic masculinity. I mean, everything, I think all cultural ideations and cultural expressions can very much just see a lot less of that in the, sort of the popular culture of classical music i'm sure if i talked to spoke to mm-hmm. classical musicians they'd be like oh let me tell you about the toxic masculinity i'm sure yeah but i do think that that challenging i mean poetry in particular we think mm-hmm. oh so effeminate absolutely yet, especially in white toxic masculinity you have from what i understanding and is that you have like one of the things about rappers and rapping is mm-hmm. the verbal, the, 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 you know, like rap battles, mm-hmm. be able to off the top of your head rhyme and on any given topic, I mean, as very masculine. And yeah. I, I first heard of this, I was at a conference. I was like, Oh, that is so Viking. That's so. Yeah. Old. And that is not the association that many people who idealize the Norse for their masculinity would First of all, they wouldn't want that connection with rap necessarily, but the, the Vikings really valued poetry and beautiful things, things right. objects that were beautiful and embroidery and exotic silks from China, mm-hmm. and, and I think that there was there were many opportunities to showcase that. Oh, check out my yeah. loyal fool! I brought you this beautiful cloak, right. Or, you know, Yeah, and also the ways in which I think like modern toxic masculinity is very much this kind of uh, 
you know, our sort of white warrior man is fundamentally this kind of lone figure that Mm -hmm. he is often kind of fundamentally outside of social circles and connections, whereas the masculinity perhaps more appropriate to the time perhaps would have had a place more value on real affective and emotional ties that he might have had with other men. Oh, absolutely. And the importance of followers, the posse of dudes, as I, you know, yeah and he he doesn't have a posse of dudes and he actually even says basically he says to Olga like you're the this is the first you're the first person I felt close with since I was a child he has essentially no affective emotional relationships except for this one romantic sexual connection with a woman and that again that feels very much like modern masculinity and not Viking or other forms of medieval masculinity right where like it would have made sense for him to have like a buddy who came with him I mean, absolutely. And I think is that, I mean, that's one of the things that kind of, I mean, masculinity has always performed a relationship to other men. Mm-hmm. I mean, Beowulf is much more masculine this time. He leads a posse of dudes mm-hmm. that he's able to reward. He has mm-hmm. emotional connections with them. You know, when he passes, people are like weeping for him. Mm-hmm. And that would have been, I mean, this lone, that's, I'm really glad you brought that up because that certainly is sort of, we think about the lone wolf masculinity. I mean, even thinking about our sort of white supremacist and Mm -hmm. domestic, you know, very healthy domestic terrorism. That it's the lone gunman is the, you know, modern white supremacist ideal, uh, the lone gunman who goes to Buffalo and murders a bunch of people, mostly people of color in a mall. And yet they are not lone gunmen. They right. are part of these groups and networks that have been set up mm-hmm. accidentally on a purpose model on the Turner Diaries and these different ways mm-hmm. of, because we know what the right thing is to do. Mm-hmm. We know the right thing is to die for the white race, kill for the white race, typically anti-government, typically, you know, you can be like pro-America and anti-government at the same time in this. And then we don't need to have like, hierarchies and structures and and like organized cells because we all know what to do and you know this is the way and this is like a it means also that sort of it escapes the radar we have a much easier way as a society and an audience Mm -hmm. public to understand something like you know oh jihadists who are like part of these sort of trained indoctrinated by specific imams or whatever like this is like we have an easier time understanding these sort of networks and groups like uh, whatever those are easier for us to understand but we have a harder time understand that we have this whole really really powerful and present white supremacist mm-hmm. system it just Absolutely. doesn't osama bin laden at the helm it's right. all these dudes and then they act as quote-unquote lone wolves but they are part of the of course yeah dudes. and they are actually katie blue has in her book uh bringing the war home which is about mm-hmm. basically the i mean in many ways answers the question how did the oklahoma city bombing happen mm-hmm. and it builds on this whole network of, of dudes but also women how men connect through marriages to different groups yeah and so even though our ideal is this lone wolf who will die for and, you know, kill for the white race and stuff, this idea, which, you know, you see in Omelette's character is actually, it's actually not the case. They are yeah. part of these posses of 
predominantly dudes. Right. And that and that this film does then feed into though the myth, right, of the Absolutely. of the lone wolf by the fact that again, he doesn't have a pot. He really doesn't have a posse of dudes. He doesn't have a posse. He's got he's got like one lady who he picked up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they and, even could have done something interesting with it because there actually is a move that he makes. He actually frees the, all these, you know, not that he has the authority to do so, but he like pops up and tells all the slaves you're free now. Right. It would have been interesting if they'd actually meaningfully explored him actually developing relationships with the other people, including the other men, right. Who are enslaved on this farm. Yeah, absolutely. Like creating new ties of solidarity. Absolutely. And maybe there's a combination there is like, we want freedom. Maybe it's, you know, there's, there's would have been opportunities, again, missed opportunities to do that. Or like he's saved by these, when he's a child, he's saved by these other dudes. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of in that group and, and that's great. But does he have no friends from there? Does he, I mean, maybe not. I mean, he basically says he doesn't. I mean, he says like, he says to Olga, he actually says, right? He says, you're the, this is the first time I felt close to someone since I was a child. And so, and there's also like at the beginning, also like the guy who's his, I guess, you know, who's like runs, runs that posse says basically like i'm so glad that you like joined up because like basically like i picked you because you have a heart of cold iron that certainly doesn't imply that he's like developing a lot of you know emotional affective ties within this group no certainly not even though they have that sort of group ritual of becoming becoming Mm -hmm. sort of like wolf headed wolf people who then go and massacre the church you know even through those ritualized things they could have had opportunities to have yeah social something they really seem like they're emphasizing the fact that this is like a man with no friends mm-hmm. yeah which is which, a, you know which is a problem right like this is like you know this is absolutely a problem in terms of like dynamics of masculinity is that like men today are basically like discouraged in a lot of social ways from actually having really emotional meaningfully yeah. relation meaningful relationships with other men and this is, is like not a no. good dynamic yeah very problematic and, you know, from those perspectives, so many other, I mean, I'm thinking 13th Warrior that has mm-hmm. these friendships and yeah. this sort of kind of supportive network there. And, and so this yeah, is... He makes friends. It's, it's nice. And, but sometimes, and I think it's very sad that we, as a society, this is one more way to alienate, idealize not having friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was when I saw the movie, there were these two dudes who would come to see the movie together and... Oh, you know, good it's like, good for them, right? But my, for example, he used to go to the movies with a, you know, there was like the freak show in town. There was like our family and then this other family where the father was British. And, you know, our two quote unquote foreign fathers would go to the movies together and people would be like, like this little town in Eastern Finland, people would be like, oh, like that was completely alien. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're born, they were born in the 40s and early 50s. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it is this, you know, it's this dynamic, dynamic that, you know, is not just is not just contemporary, but that is, you know, certainly a modern rather than medieval one in terms of how we understand masculinity. And yeah, and I, I wish I wish that the film hadn't gone so hard on that, I guess. These revenge dramas are so dependent on the people that you muster to support you. Yes. Who is okay, I need to kill these people because they killed my father or whatever. Mm-hmm. Who is going to, who am I going to trust to, to support me? Or like, well, no, we can't enact revenge because they have more supporters than I do. And so right. those networks of men and those friendships and the kinship, the foster brothers, the mm-hmm. foster fathers, 
It's all about these networks. It's all about those relationships between men, mm-hmm. among women, because there's not guys, right? And it's, but it's, and that it's so unfortunate that this is how we weaponize the past, the history, mm-hmm. that, that what yeah. we want the past to have been or how we want to portray it. And it is unfortunate that not only is it historically inaccurate, but it also is part of a feedback loop that perpetuates some of the really deep psychological yeah. problems and traumas that we have in our society. Yeah, absolutely. So we should we should talk a little bit about uh, some of the other things that the film got right and wrong. And I will say this is certainly a film where like you can at the very least tell, and I have a lot of appreciation for this, that Eggers did a lot of research, really did rely on the expertise of his historical consultants. He seems like in particular, he was actually really interested from what I understand reading, certainly that he was really interested in kind of thinking about connecting with, uh, you know, material culture so that, you know, this game, Not Laker, is a real game. It's one that the sources that are actually, the, the older sources refer to it they don't have a detailed enough description for us to actually be very clear on precisely what the rules are and that actually I wonder if that was why we never get an explanation of the rules is because by just having us watch it we can like have preserve some of that ambiguity without him kind of taking a stance on what the rules are since we Mm -hmm. that is what we don't totally know but I think that's interesting I think it's interesting that you know he kind of makes moves like saying like he actually you know talked about this in a review in, in like an interview interview in the New Yorker that basically he's like a crown would be wrong so like you've got this like golden headpiece thing because a crown would be anachronistic mm-hmm. and I'm like yeah, I, I appreciate that attention to detail yeah and I mean the way that the the longhouses were built mm-hmm. um how they look the sort of effigies of the gods have a lot of sort of yes makes sense the clothing in general, I thought was very good. I like the clothing. The women have these shield brooches. When you have the, the he witch, the seer at seer, Seizamon, when you have that. In Iceland, he's wearing women's clothing. And, and so cross-dressing seems to have been problematic in various ways. But women were coded much more like seeresses in various ways. You have male seers, but it's much more often female. So even though I can't say that we have historical evidence for males here dressing in women's clothing, it, I value that. I kind of buy it. Like it, yeah. you know, like, it, like, I'm like, all right, like I'll take that. And so that was interesting. I liked the, you know, you have this aspect of, oh, Harold and Harold of Norway, Harold Finehair shows up the saga. And that's, there's been a really interesting sort of shift in the historiography where the Icelandic sagas often say, oh, you know, people are fleeing to Iceland from Harold. And then people have been like, oh, no, they're like the historiography changed. And they're like, no, this is not as big a deal. And now sort of current historiography is much more in the, well, actually, yeah, the whole Viking raids and stuff play into certain chieftains gaining mm-hmm. more and more power to become kings and the people right. in Norway. And it's particularly the wealthy people who, who you know, have retinues they have households mm-hmm. who can afford to move to iceland and so you have this guy who has been you know the right hand man of his brother and then they've been on raids and he has wealth and he kills his father his, excuse me his brother takes the sister-in-law as his wife and then harold shows up and is like 
he didn't actually unite Norway, but right. But, but he certainly, you know, presented in the sagas as doing these various things, right? And is that it's also in the sagas, right, that these people then go to Iceland, who are kind of displaced by him. So and they go to Iceland, Iceland to get away from centralizing power because their powers mm-hmm. are themselves. And then you have some dude who's like, "I want to be king." I mean, and certainly Harold's sort of current historians are like Harold Finehair is super important because he is like this idea of uniting something right. that you could call Norway's and so forth. But you do have this. And um, so I appreciate that, that sort of like why we have this person who's gone and become, and they're like, Oh, he's become a sheep farmer. He's clearly not just a sheep farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then he goes and the, they go and visit another farm. I mean, and I can sort of understand that they're doing visiting another farm because people did that all the time. You're like going. Right. Yeah. Sense. And I like that aspect. I like that the hall, the big hall that they had in Iceland mm-hmm. is much more bare than the first hall. You have fewer yeah, people. which makes a lot of sense, right? They're not sending people on raids to bring back nice things to the same degree. To the same degree, it, you know, there's sort of more, it's more recent, perhaps. Mm-hmm. There's sort of, so those are aspects that were sort of interesting. I like that the slaves had accents of, you know, Irish. Yeah. And, and so forth. I will also just add, you know, we've kind of touched on this a little bit before, right? But so that, you know, the the sagas are one of the, you know, essentially kind of sources that are really valuable, but that have to be used critically because they're kind of talking about these earlier periods. But in terms of the, at least versions of the text that we have that are written down, they're mostly what, like 12th, 13th century? Yeah, 13th century predominantly. Yeah. But at the same time, like we, we, I mean, we can't just take them at face value. Exactly. But things in them that, kind of capture ethoses and ideas there's a particular the material material culture has not necessarily mm-hmm. changed that much that's also been because there was a shift at some point where people like you can't you know use sagas for anything except mm-hmm. talking to people iceland christian iceland and now there's sort of more like well there's actually things that we can take from them and i certainly think that like a film i you know in terms of like when i think films can and can't take liberties i think certainly like i you know i understand why a film is you know it's fine for me for a film to basically just say like i'm just going to treat the sagas Mm -hmm. as evidence in terms of being able to try and recreate on screen this sort of material culture and from everything that we kind of have, it certainly seems that this, and not just the Vikings, right? Not mm-hmm. just the Vikings, or not the not just the Norse, but there is this revenge culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have this from early Germanic, everything from like what Romans are writing, but to all the way, not that one should trust the Romans, but they're writing here. But right. like, this is a society where revenge and mitigating revenge is a really important mm-hmm. part of, of culture and society. Yeah. And you have, you know, like the, I have my students read from the Gragas, the Grey Goose Laws, you know, the women on whose behalf a man is allowed mm-hmm. to kill. And, yeah. you know, the circumstances, like if a woman and a man are lying together and having sex, is it willful or is it forced? And mm-hmm. and you also these mechanisms of, you know, paying, we would call it vergel, like this, the money that you pay in exchange for lost limbs or lost life. This is a society that seems to have been all the evidence points to revenge. It's a, re- you know, yeah. the revenge is a really important part of it. And if I was sitting here being like, you know what, I would like to write a revenge drama. Mm-hmm. I mean, because revenge is interesting as yeah. a thing. Where else would I possibly go than that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, and as a revenge drama, I think this is a very successful movie. Yeah. 
No, I, I do as well. Yeah. And I, and I think there, as I said, I, you know, I, there are certainly criticisms, but I think there are a lot of things that are really interesting about this film in terms of how it's kind of connecting with this literature. I do also have to add my like fun fact, which is that I was looking up things on the, uh, the Drogur, so this kind of mound dweller. Mm-hmm. So first of all, this does seem to have been Tolkien's yeah. inspiration specifically for the Barrow Whites. But that then also that there is a modern Norwegian translation, which also uses the same term for uh, the army of the dead and for the Nazgul. Really? Yeah. I mean, this is this is according to just Wikipedia, but uh, so not necessarily the most reputable source. But there was a there was a citation associated with it. So uh, I thought that was really interesting. A lot of what Tolkien gets, I mean, a lot where he gets these cre- these creatures, I suppose, these various yeah. things, do come from from Norse. Uh, Absolutely. Norse. Yeah. And yeah. The Hobbit, those, all those dwarves, mm-hmm. their names are likely from, um, Oh yeah, Norse absolutely. Norse. Yeah. And you know, and also like having, I, I just, uh, recently reread, I'm sort of in the process of rereading Lord of the Rings and having read, you know, so having read like the Barrow White scene recently, it was mm-hmm. really interesting watching this scene. And then I'm like, I can, you know, you can really see, right. These, these connections. Absolutely. Yeah. And Anyways, our modern fantasy, as we ha- know it, mm-hmm. comes from Tolkien. And Tolkien, he didn't, like, invent it. It's not, he wasn't a tabla rasa. And he brings it from mythology and sort of, um, that he studied. So, mm-hmm. early medieval England. Yep. The Norse, the Finnish mythology, although there's other things going on there, because the way he had access to Finnish mythology was from largely how it was collected and, and re-sewn together by 19th century doctor to appeal to elite Swedish speaking mm-hmm. bourgeoisie in Helsinki, but you know, whatever. And so the, that a lot of that comes from, from the Norse world mm-hmm. and how it did. And, and, and so I think that that is, uh, makes perfect sense that the Draugr and, and then the Nazgul sort of, I don't see that, but certainly the Barrow White. Sure. The Barrow White is the one where, as I said, I think it's kind of very clear that, you know, Tolkien took inspiration and then it's at the, you know, the army and the dead and the Nazgul. It's that I don't think that on Tolkien's part, there is as clear, I, I don't think that's as clearly the antecedent, but I think it's interesting that then that's the word in terms of this, like these creatures that are like kind of dead, but not exactly mm-hmm. dead. I guess was it was kind of my understanding that like that ended up being the kind of most fitting term that then kind of gets yeah. used in this translation because I because I guess from what I understand in kind of modern Norwegian maybe the kind of term has sort of a kind of broader set of residences so yeah and I thought that was fascinating chooses those is certainly this is one of the things that I always found really interesting back home in Finland is that there's like two translations of Lord of the Rings into Finnish and I have all these friends who who read fantasy and there's you get into these conversations about which trans, which translation is better and why mm-hmm. and these are people who you know have read the english and have read both finnish translations and have those conversations and then now that i live in the united states and so much of what we read is written in english yeah and we don't have those and this is you know like i, I just I sort of find it thinking about how do you translate something like nazgul into norwegian i mean did you right right but having a a culturally resonant word makes a lot of sense i think that's really interesting yeah Yeah. 
So at this point, let's spend a little bit of time talking about in the Historia at Veritas, our, uh, our source legend, the story of Amleth, which is, of course, the source material for Shakespeare's Hamlet. So I, I think I've seen the term like retelling mm-hmm. um, as opposed to retelling being used to describe this film, right? Because especially as you're watching it, you know, it's very, it's like, okay, yeah, it's Hamlet. We get it's Hamlet, but it's, uh, yeah, this is in fact the, the proto Hamlet. And so this is a story where I believe there is reason to think that the versions go back to old Norse legends that would date to around the 10th century, but that in terms of the version that we have, uh, really the kind of most substantial certainly version is that it takes up basically a couple of lengthy chapters in Saxo Grammaticus's Gesta Denorum, so written yeah. in like the late 12th and early 13th century. And this is essentially this kind of history, but of course, as uh, medievalists know, right, the way in which history gets written in this period, uh, you know, and in the Roman period and later into the medieval and early modern period, that there's not a firm boundary between history and legend, Mm -hmm. that uh, often there is certainly a kind of sense, right, that history should perhaps be kind of used in ways that's maybe kind of interesting or morally instructive and in that they're not necessarily doing the same kind of like careful source criticism perhaps that we would do in our, you know, in a modern work of history or even, you know, even if it is a historical, you know, nonfiction narrative. Mm-hmm. So certainly we're talking about something that is like history, but history in a very different sense from what we understand today. And Saxo, I mean, Saxo is amazing. Saxo mm-hmm. is a really fantastically interesting text. Yeah. And so, you know, this particular version that we have in the Northman, I think is also interesting because you can really see how the Northman, the film is very much kind of combining things that are sort of coming out and certainly kind of, in, you know, this setting, right. That he's kind of drawing on things that are coming from this kind of Saxo Grammaticus story, you know, version of the story with about this character, Amleth, but then he's also then bringing in these things that like, that's really just Hamlet. Right. And then there's also things that like show up in both Hamlet and in Saxo Grammaticus that then aren't really in this film, for example. So that uh, Amleth is in uh, the Gesta Denorum is allowed to survive in part because he feigns madness mm-hmm. uh, for a period of time, which is, you know, in Hamlet as well, but is not really in this film. That instead we kind of replace that with the kind of disguising him as a slave, but nobody knows his true identity. The uncle in the orig- in this kind of original version of the story eventually becomes suspicious. There's a, there's a lot more traveling back and forth. He like mm-hmm. ships him off to Britain with a couple of attendants. These are of course our proto Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. I would have loved it. I would have loved to have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern uh, in this in this film. We did not. And so basically, again, sends him off with these attendants to Britain with a letter saying, please, when my nephew Amleth shows up, can you put him to death for me? Amleth gets the message, changes the message. So instead, it now says, can you please, when they get here, put my put these two attendants to death and have mm-hmm. Amleth marry your daughter? Which, I mean, is creating alliances, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Mm-hmm. So he comes back, he actually gets everybody drunk, which is interesting, given that, you know, we do have the, uh, the hallucinogenics uh, as kind of part of the process here and, you know, enacts his revenge. But I also find it interesting, right, that this isn't actually the end of the story. 
And that it also, in terms of the whole version of the story, it really gets into the fact that, again, that this vengeance culture is something that, you know, potentially is, you know, can go on for a very long time, but also thinking about different kinds of forms of solidarities and alliances, that when he gets back, it turns out that his father-in-law has this whole pledge with his uncle that they're going to avenge one another's deaths. Which, I mean, relationships between men. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Relationships between men, which are like deeply valuable. And so in my sense is that the father-in-law is then like, he's kind of torn because on the one hand, he has this pledge. On the other hand, this is now his son-in-law. Mm-hmm. He ends up basically shipping him off now to like proxy woo some like Scottish queen mm-hmm. because she's got like a rep for murdering her suitors. Well, which I mean, it's good for her. Yeah. I mean, it's one way to get rid of, of, of Hamlet. Of course, it doesn't work because he ends up marrying her and then she falls. Yeah, she falls for him. And so then he's like got these two wives who are like both 100% on his team. It's like he shows back up and then like wife number one warns him that dad is not really on his side. And so he, you know, manages to survive all this, but then ends up like eventually, you know, going back home and eventually still getting killed because he like becomes involved in like a new sort of relationship of enmity. Which certainly fits the times. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a much more kind of complicated story that we uh, we sort of shave down in a lot of ways in this film. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, one of the things that that story kind of tells us, first of all, that this sort of North Sea cultural sphere and how people have connections, there's alliances, and also that, you know, it's not just the quote-unquote Vikings who are violent and have yeah. revenge. yeah. No, absolutely. That, you know, this is something that is uh, this kind of culture, right? It's something that is far from uh, unique to this Viking context. But I do think this is an interesting move to take this story, which is in some ways really familiar, putting it back in this setting, which is arguably, you know, initially where it's coming out of to some extent. Mm-hmm. It does capture yeah. many of the, much of the ethos and sort of what we do know. I love that religion has, uh, is real. Mm-hmm. Because religion is real for people who practice it. And and it's real in a lot of medieval texts as yeah. well, right? That medieval texts have this, you know, blend between uh, the sacred and the supernatural mm-hmm. and the everyday. And that those things aren't always distinguished from one another clearly. That, uh, you know, oh. that that is absolutely a part of medieval literature. And I like that it is also a part of this film. Yeah, absolutely. Even though they sort of prioritize which religion, which religious practices or rituals or or visions are real and which are not. But I think that that's a small sacrifice to make in the big picture of having having religion be real and religious practice and rituals be real. I like the association of wolves with Odin in various ways. Yeah. I like the, I mean, I know the werewolf bar mitzvah was a bit... I mean, it was, I had, I cringed so much, but that's me. But it makes sense. And I also made sense that when he's out with his people in, in the land of the Rus, I mean, arguably they were the Rus, right? Right. That they, I think that is the, the term that Ed Fadlan uses right here, the, that he could kind of describe them as the Rus. Yes. And the Rus. When he is on his embassy to the Volga Bulgars. Yeah. The scholarly consensus is that the Rus is this sort of kind of like a trade conglomerate of people yeah. who live on the what we would today call the Russian rivers, you know, yes, that would include people from Scandinavia, but that would have included other peoples as well. And so I like that when they do the whole reading of that village, but mm-hmm. which we have thoughts on that, I, but I like that they have this sort of collective dudes becoming wolves, quote unquote. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Boys becoming men, men becoming wolves. Right. Like there's that sort of, and it plays on them. Like, we know so little about berserkers. We know so little about berserkers mm-hmm. and how that whole, I think the, there's one book length study in French on there, on it. And, and just, the, and this, there's this conflation between berserkers and Orfavian. And, and there's sort of this, and of course, you know, various like conflations of violence and animals. And, and mm-hmm. so, oh, and I sort of like that. I don't know, as, 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 not that I think you need to like whip yourself up into a frenzy to, per- you know, per- perpetrate violence. Certainly not. Right. But, but it was a, it was a nice touch. Yeah. And I thought it was a nice touch that they're like doing the whole wolf thing as opposed to the bear thing. But whatever. Yeah, no, I did too, especially because of this association of wolves and Odin, right? That he's got the wolves and he's got the ravens and, you know, these are his buddies. And I think in relation to that, it is also an interesting touch that mm-hmm. Fjolnir's dog friend, who, who sadly does need to be like killed at some point, I, I was very sad, yeah. uh, is an Irish wolfhound. So, of course, a hunter and killer of wolves, mm-hmm. which you would not know from meeting an Irish wolfhound today because they are the nicest dogs ever. But that's the thing I grew up with an Irish dog. wolfhound. Highly trainable. Yeah, right? no. Like just, yeah. are super sweet and awesome, but they're super trainable. And so people yeah. train to be, you know, can train them to be quite nefarious. Right. There, are no, yeah. there are no bad dogs. There's only mm-hmm. bad people, right? Yeah, like, no, absolutely. Do to animals. It says a lot more about, you know, when there's a horrible animal. It's usually. Yes. Well, it's always about a horrible person. Always about a horrible person. And I also said, but at the same time, part of me is like, well, you know, he is in this posse of wolf dudes and, you know, having a posse of dudes who would have been like, oh, yeah, let's all go and, like, extract, like, yeah, I, I wish he had friends. Slave and go and, like, do this. Yeah. Like, right? Like, yeah, no. or as I said, like, a st- you know, either, like, bringing his posse of wolf of wolf bros along with him, uh, or, you know, developing kind of relationships among the other people who are, you know, enslaved mm-hmm. people on this farm. Yeah, I, I wish he'd had friends. So maybe, you know, in terms of thinking about what we wish the film might have done differently, this can lead into our Fabula Nostra, where we talk about a film or other piece of media inspired by this one. And I will say, you know, as usual, I I just actually want to have more films that actually prioritize women's perspectives, mm-hmm. both because I think that, you know, Olga is a character who has a lot of potential and could have been a lot more interesting. And also shout out to the fact that so she is, of course, linked to Hamlet's Ophelia, which is actually technically my dog's name. I don't think she knows that. She goes by Opie. And I'm pretty sure she does not know that her name is actually Ophelia, but you know, but in, in her honor as well. That's that's what I want is I'd like something that's, you know, like this, but from her perspective. And I think, you know, it would have been interesting to think about the ways in which women do participate in vengeance culture. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, the ways in which they are kind of presented, right, as kind of spurring men into action. And that it would have been nice to, I guess, just as I said, have, a, have more of a sense of what her motivations are other than, I guess I like these, this man's muscles, which is kind of all we get in the film, which is sort of disappointing. That's what I would have liked. I initially was like, I would like her to be the main character and this to be sort of her revenge narrative. Because I do maintain that this started off as a I want a revenge story. Mm-hmm. And I think that she would have been a very interesting character and, you know, how he could have manipulated, you know, him, how, you know, he could have 
he could have thought it was all about him, but actually he's a tool for her vengeance in various ways. And but I actually and, would have loved to have her sort of playing both sides so that what she actually wants is what actually happens, which is that all of these people get killed. All of these people get killed. And she has, you know, she has a safe haven. She has this ring that she can show yeah. up at Orkney and be like, hey, take care of me. Check, check me out. And I think that would have been really interesting. I also think it would have been really interesting and kind of played into the tragedy if Gudrun had been the main character. Like, what would have happened if this had been absolutely her perspective? We could have had flashbacks to when Alvandil finds her, enslaves her, rapes mm-hmm. her. We could have this whole revenge narrative and how ultimately, you know, it's futile and everyone dies, but her grandchildren survive. Yeah, yeah. Daughter is going to go off and become the maiden queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, these visions that people are having, and so I do think that, and she because she's by far the most interesting character. Yeah, in the, as is. Although I think Olga has so much potential that I really wish we had had more, more well developed character. But I do think that there, if we're going to have a revenge drama that critiques toxic masculinity and critiques, mm-hmm. you know, we could have used her as a way to to do that in a way mm-hmm. that would have centered women as not just victims of, of this right. perpetrators of this yeah. active motors. And we have so many great examples yes. doing this. And also and- that I think having it be from her perspective could have also allowed the film, I think, you know, to, to not necessarily make a change in terms of what her, pers- in terms of the, what her choices are, but in terms of having having some critique as well and as opposed to as uh, the way it's done I don't feel like the film was ultimately successfully critiquing it you know having some critique of the way in which she's kind of participating in you know this same culture that she sees as having you know damaged and destroyed her life that, that she then is, is kind of perpetrating this the same thing being done to other women yeah absolutely and that would have been really an interesting way of doing it and maybe having some dynamics something between Olga and Gudrun as well mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting way of getting some very valid points across. And this, I will say, is you know, as as I I think this is in a lot of ways a better movie than The Last Duel. But one critique that I have of both films is that both of them are supposed to be about right how certain of these cultures of masculinity are bad. And I'm going to, you know, propose the radical idea that you could, in fact, make those critiques and actually center and give real time and space and motivation to women, maybe? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, ultimately, women are sort of collateral damage to toxic mm-hmm. masculinity, and that's fair, because that's how women are. We, we are collateral damage in toxic masculinity. Like, masculinity is not constructed for us. It's not... right relationship to us we are tools in this process in many ways and that it reifies that when they're then just kind of ancillary figures ultimately in these films mm-hmm. yeah but at the same time we are victims of yeah mm-hmm. we're also victims of toxic femininity and in, in of course ways, but that is not something that i can really i mean well there's toxic femininity in many ways when goodrum's character oh absolutely is her body her attractiveness you know going from one man to another. If she's a slave, she can't just, you know, divorce. I mean, in, nice, in, in old Norse society, people, there was divorce, right? But she can't mm-hmm. do that because she doesn't have her own wealth or whatever if she was a slave. I mean, presumably, 
Although who knows, right? Again, you know, the Northman missed opportunities, but there were many things I would say of sort of historical movies in many ways, it does capture more cultural and sort of, I don't want to use the word actor accuracy, I think ethos or, Mm -hmm. and things in ways that most movies, it, it sucks. As a historian looking at this movie, it annoys the living daylights out of me much less than many movies. Despite, I agree. Yeah. I missed opportunities. And so I feel like, you know, think about like the whole estimatio, the movie I feel like is maybe a four, but the director is like a three. Yeah. I think ultimately for me, I'm settling on a 3.5. Mm-hmm. I think that from the perspective of historical accuracy, I think it deserves higher And for me, what's knocking it down is that I ultimately am a little disappointed and think that, again, like I I know Eggers can do better Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, giving a real, even, you know, even if Amleth is the main character, I still think more could have been done, especially with Olga in terms of giving real value to women's perspectives, even if they're supporting characters. And I think kind of the sad part is I think he actually might think he is doing that. Right. Which and he's not. not. Certainly not with Olga, maybe with Gudrun. I think at least that's an interesting character and he does interesting things. But with Olga, I really think that is a failure as a character. And so that for me is it. I, I struggled with this rating, but I think for me, ultimately, that and the ways in which... I also watching this film, you know, as we kind of discussed before, right, I think this film draws too straight of a line between modern and medieval forms of toxic masculinity mm-hmm. in ways that I think are ultimately both historically inaccurate, but also I think socially problematic that I think even if you're critiquing this toxic masculinity, it actually simultaneously gives it more credence to imply that it actually has this much uh, longer history than it really does. Yes. In terms of the kind of specifics of like 21st century American toxic masculinity. I don't understand because the audience is a modern audience and the audience is certainly Exactly. And, uh, you know, and as well, right, that, you know, I think there are interesting questions about precisely what a director artist responsibility is. But I think especially because we know very, very well the ways in which this history is wielded and misused by white nationalists in an American context. I think that does, you know, given that like, that's not new, that's not surprising. He would have known that when he's making the film. I do think that there would have been, that there is a little bit more responsibility that the director ultimately bears in terms of thinking about how your film is going to be seen by that audience and whether you're not intentionally, but potentially, you know, buying into and supporting their abhorrent ideology. And I think there are ways in which the film, as I said, I don't think intentionally at all, but I think it, but I, you know, but it is, it has been accepted as like a good portrayal of like badass, nice Viking boys by that audience. And, you know, I, I I don't think you want that. And you could have done some things a little bit differently potentially to avoid that. And I think it's sort of like, I think I recognize that it's hard to do that. It's hard to dismantle especially in the time that we have like mm-hmm. one movie one film is very short and there's only so much one can pack in and i sort of understand that that is hard 
I also feel, I mean, like likewise, it is hard, but I, I really find it problematic that we, of course, yes, the Norse were violent. Everyone was violent. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like... Everyone's still violent, in fact. Right? Absolutely. We're just violent in different ways. And sometimes similar ways, which is really scary as well. But, like, how does one... That sort of violence, in a, like these people were violent in ways that were culturally familiar and similar across across the board. Like Charlemagne was super violent, patron mm-hmm. saint of Europe, Emperor Charlemagne. What we need is a movie from the perspective of the Saxons that he massacred, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, again, that's, you know, all of this, everything, all of this can play into like problematic ways that white supremacists can appropriate these concerns and these sort of portrayals to sort of quote unquote prove their perspective and to do that in ways that doesn't become, you know, weird virtue signaling or, you know, like strange is also problematic, but you know, I don't know, maybe we need a movie that centers the Jorvik Viking from Africa. Right. Right. Or, you know, or even like, I think it would have been interesting to, instead of having this like hyper violent raid scene, when we're kind of looking at this figure in Bruce, I yeah. think that there, in fact, could have been, again, a more accurate way of, you know, in, like replacing that with a scene that really kind of gets into the complexities and the wide range of intercultural interactions yes. that Vikings actually would have had. And that you could have had that, you know, not that, would that have solved white supremacy? No. But could you have made a different choice that would have taken up basically the same amount of time and that would have somewhat kind of undermined this traditional image yeah actually what if you know he had been part of a group of vikings who's coming down south and they're selling you know slaves maybe or furs or amber amber Mm -hmm. amber and they're coming down south and they meet up with a bunch of other traders and some of them are markedly non-white and some of mm-hmm. them could even be vikings that are markedly not white mm-hmm. and speaking arabic and speaking byzantine greek and then oh here's a group of slaves that are you know have been commissioned you know where these are the slaves i am here to buy slaves for Fjordne, blah 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 the brother list and then he could have been like oh and then infiltrated into that group of slaves without yeah. that whole and so there's i mean that would have been totally you know you could have had people speaking Finnish, you could have people speaking, you know, Russian, you could have had people speaking Arabic and Greek, you could have had Jewish traders, you could have had, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many things that we could have done. Yeah. With. I'll also even add that I think then that would have made the hyper violence in the game scene make more sense if he we'd had this sense right that he had this period of his life where he was basically like a traitor and not always deeply embedded in this kind of hyper violent way of living in the world right because you know because then it will be like could be like him like i don't know getting getting in touch with that uh you know Mm -hmm. side of himself where he headbutts a man to death whereas it seems like it's not necessary in the film right because we you know just saw him 15 minutes ago massacre a village right right Mm-hmm. And he would have been a more complex character. Right. And then that also would have potentially kind of added into the like the weird sense, right? This little weird sense of it seems like, you know, and this is something that, you know, makes the story longer. It's also something that's very much in Hamlet that, you know, he delays a lot in terms of actually exacting his revenge in ways that are at times frustrating for an audience. Mm-hmm. And so I think it would have been even an interesting way to explain that is, you know, in the same way that like Hamlet is not a person who is like, 
a person whose butter and bread is violence and Mm -hmm. slaughter, if they'd actually kind of interrogated that with Amleth, that like, that's not what his everyday is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would have been really interesting. And it would have also like nuanced really delightfully the Norse. Yeah. You know, the chieftain who goes raiding and comes home to his son and son and child and brings tribute. You know, he's trying to build his little empire there, right? And then we have a son who goes off and does trading, which was significantly more important for Norse culture and economy. And then you would have had, you know, the brother who leaves Harold's state building project and goes to Iceland and is a sheep farmer, which is really important. Uh I mean, that would have been, that would have sort of shown us a lot more of the nuances of Norse culture and society in ways that would have actually made sense in the storyline. Yeah. I think that's great. I think that's what they should have done. Yeah. I think, I think we've successfully rewritten this movie. I absolutely think. And again, and we've done that essentially by like, we've changed like a few scenes. We're not Mm -hmm. talking about like making this into, you know, a six hour mini series, right. Mm -hmm. That there are relatively small changes that could have been made in terms of, you know, the, you know, certainly not in terms of like adding an immense amount of time to the film, not in terms of doing anything that is, you know, preachy mm-hmm. that we could add that absolutely there's things that could have really added some interesting nuance and uh, solved some of the issues here. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that there could have been a lot of opportunities there. And of course, I think that I, th- I think the acting in general is pretty good. I do oh, think yeah. some of the age differences, like having you know, a younger, I mean, I think Alexander Skarsgård did a great, great job as Amleth. I totally, and I think he was great. I, I just, I don't love when you have a woman who is nine years older than playing his mother. It's like, I have an actual older woman. Like, I do think Nicole Kidman did a great job. And she was excellent. Yeah. Excellent. But what if we had had, I don't know, I'm very bad at people's ages, but like Meryl Streep, is Meryl Streep older? I think so. We could have had Helen Mirren. Helen Helen Mirren would have been great. I mean, or certainly, you know, again, nothing against Alexander Skarsgård. We could have, you know, aged down. Amleth would have been another way to do that. I'm, I can always have Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> he plays Thor, right? I think it would be fascinating to see if Chris Hemsworth could pull off somebody who is... Broody. Yeah. I would be really interested. I don't know if it would work, but I would I would love to see the screen test. Yeah. I haven't decided if I'd love to see the movie, but I'd love to see the screen test. I would have maybe liked to switch. I mean, switch out. I'm all for people who are not American making it in Hollywood in various ways. Absolutely. So yay, Team Scott Squad. But I, I, I feel like Nicole Kidman did such a good job as good. She did. Yeah. She was really, really good. And so I think aging Amleth down... And that would also, again, make him, like, closer, you know, and, you know, I know in real life that, like, age differences of 20 years happen, but, like, we're not talking about a real relationship, right? We're talking about Hollywood and the fact that, like, the default is that the appropriate age for a love interest for a man in his 40s is a woman in his 20s. If that was not you know, then be fine but since that is the norm it just gets so old right and given that it's like all right given that also it would be nice that you know if we're sticking with Anya Taylor-Joy which I'm very happy to do Mm -hmm. and also you know it would be nice to have an Amleth who is somewhat at least closer to her in age yeah it's really an age difference there between Nicole Kidman and Alexander Skarsgård is only nine years I mean if it was like 13 you could be yeah no it's nine right it's nine (laughs) 
Yeah. And that is sort of like the fact that that is such, I mean, it also feeds into sort of the modern toxic masculinity stuff. Absolutely. There's sort of a lot of like, you know, men feeling really frustrated, you know, which is one of the reasons we, we have, you know, this fantastically healthy, unfortunately, domestic terrorism thing. These mm-hmm. white men who feel that they're entitled to stuff. And one of the things they often feel entitled to are women. Including, and you know, in particular, right, like stunning younger women, right? And I think that that doesn't sort of make it easier. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know that I actually have like a specific casting that I am deeply set on for an alternative for Amleth. What we actually want is to keep the casting the way it is, but Hollywood to not have normalized it over yeah. the entirety of its existence. Yeah. And I do think that maybe, I don't know, I, I, I do think that there is still something weird about somebody playing your mother who's nine years older than you. Yeah. And again, you know, Nicole Kidman, fantastic job. And mm-hmm. I have, I have no issues performance wise with any of this casting. No, it's just, you know, a very like Hollywood's, you know, move, right? That a woman in her fifties, she's now a mother mm-hmm. and a woman in her twenties, again, like that is the, of the age appropriate love interest, apparently for a man in his forties. And I mean, understandably, my guess is Alexander Skarsgård's character, Amleth, is also supposed to be in his 20s. Yeah, yeah. And that, of course, men, right, get to, you know, men in their 40s get to play a decade younger and women don't. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's really, I think, what what the kind of set of issues is here, right? Is that, you know, and this is, and it's very common. I'm very confused often about, like, how we are so alienated from aging and we're yeah. terrified of death and and especially, like, I think about I'm a woman of a certain age, right? I'm 45, and I have all these ads on social media for makeup mm-hmm. and, like, anti-aging products. Yes. Like, I don't use any makeup, ever. Mm-hmm. Like, are you trying to sell me stuff that's going to conceal bags under my eyes or wrinkles or whatever? And I'm like, I mean, I targeted ads, fine. Have I ever Googled makeup? Right. Yeah. That it's not, it's not targeted at you because it's actually in your buying habits. It's targeted at you because, well, you're a woman. And so you must watch these things. And I Google things like, you know, I had to try to understand American credit rating the other day. And I, well, or like I'll Google, you know, things that that mark me as a woman of a certain age. And and I'm just like, where, and and they're never trying to sell me yarn, which Mm -hmm. I actually spend a copious amount of money and books nobody's ever trying to sell me that they're trying to sell me makeup and weight loss yeah and it's like great it's very fast yeah no I find it really interesting yeah that like I I have never like done you know a lot in terms of like looking up like dieting and weight loss kind of things and I get so many ads for it Mm -hmm. so much it's because like I'm you know a woman in my 30s so I must be dissatisfied with my body Mm -hmm. absolutely and And specifically I just want to be thinner and if we're not dissatisfied with our bodies then we're like there's something deeply wrong with us. And yes. Think of like, you know, friends that I have who are very, very slender and they're still getting ads for this. Mm-hmm. Our, of course, and there's strangers telling them that they should eat more. Yes. Which is, yeah. I mean, there's so many things that are wrong with our society. What can I say? Yes, there are. So on that note, Michi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was fantastic. Where can the listeners find you on the internet? 
They can find me at Xavier University's webpage. It's in the history department. I actually have a webpage. Yay me. I do have social media. I don't tweet a lot. So I'm not sure there's any. I mean, I put pictures of like campus at 630 in the morning, which, you know, anyone can get up and look at campus at 630 in the morning. That thing, I published some stuff, not on Vikings at all, but masculinity and late Middle Ages. Yeah. So people should, should look those things up. And of course, if you've enjoyed... <laughs> The podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. We'll read new five-star reviews and future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Muti, thank you again so much for coming on. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. And, you know, when I become a famous screenwriter, I can credit you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And yeah, thank you for spending the time on this discussion. Uh, a peek behind the curtain is that we've been recording for about three and a half hours at this point. I have a feeling the episode is not going to quite be three and a half hours, but thank you again. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Thank you. Bye. I was working late on my hot Torah When I heard a knock on my bedroom door I opened it up and to my surprise There was a werewolf standing there with glowing gold eyes He said tomorrow my son you will be a man But tonight's the time to join the wolfing clan Tomorrow you will stand at the beamer and pray But tonight let's gaze at the moon and bathe Spooky, scary, wolves becoming men, men becoming wolves. Werewolf permits Spooky, scary, wolves becoming men, men becoming wolves.